Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, July 17, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. The summer marches on. Um, I guess we're part of that population that um, Kamala Harris, which is to, um, have you seen that? I did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sometimes they'll tell you what they mean. The quiet and, part and, out loud, yeah, as they, they say. And, and instead of speaking in riddles, they'll speak in um in truths and realities. Uh, I do want to say Rev's Braves had a rough weekend. Um, mm, they they lost as many games this weekend, or more games, than they did the entire time we were gone. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's just kind of and they're a, my Braves again, I noticed. Yeah, well, you I mean, said they're, that. they're my Braves when they win two or three. They're your right. Braves when they lose right. um, two or three. Speaking That's, of baseball, that's why I didn't like the All-Star game coming when, when well, it, it does kind of, yeah. I mean, they, they had it rolling. They, I mean, they, they, they had rolling. a lot of mojo going and, and a lot of momentum. I mean, this team's really good. And they'll be fine, but I mean, you can't expect to win every series yeah. of the season. I mean, you're just not going to, to be able to do that. Speaking of baseball, I was coming on with the beach yesterday and listening to, I, I, I guess, you know, a transition from CBS Sports to ESPN. And they were talking a lot about baseball. I mean, there's nothing else really to that, talking about the NFL preseason. But we're in the probably, ah, I mean, if you're a sports fan, this is about as bad as it gets. Post-July right. 4. The doldrums. But I mean, if you are a um, a golfer, you got the Open Championship. If you're a tennis fan, you got Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. But if you are a fan of the, what I'll call the major three, basketball, baseball, and by far football being the uh, the biggest sport, um, I mean, it's just a rough next, what, five, six weeks? Mm-hmm. Um, but. So, you know, fall practice will start here sooner, sooner than later. Um, college teams will report. Uh, school gets back started. Um, the college football season is around the corner, but right now, I mean, it's um, I mean, it's the cute haircuts and clothes at Wimbledon, or the um, the history and intrigue of the Open Championship. What is it with, at Wimbledon? Please help me with this, um, because I'm a bit outdated. What is it with the dudes and the entourage? I mean, all these male tennis players who are extremely, I mean, they're good. I mean, there's no, but they got these, they got, they all have these entourages, and it's no chicks. I mean, it's all dudes, dudes with real cute haircuts. Mm. And I just wonder what's up with that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not out there accusing anybody Never of anything, thought of that. Hmm. but, but it is. And, and they're, you know, they're just, I mean, anyway, it's just, um, I doubt Trump wins Wimbledon. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Trump may win the NASCAR race crowd, but I doubt Trump wins uh, at Wimbledon. I'll just uh, leave it there, but I want to go back to baseball for a second. Cause I think this is a kind of an interesting proposition that major league baseball will deal with. The best player in the game is who? Shohei Atani. Yeah, I mean, you would have to. I mean, I, I don't know how you dis. He's two players in one. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a he's a top fifteen pitcher in the in uh, in the league. He's a top fifteen hitter in the league. So, what is he worth? I mean, is he worth twice? I mean, is he worth what the top? What a top? I looked this morning. They, they debated are, that on TV last night, so I've got an answer. Uh, there are 15 players in Major League Baseball today making $30 million a year. That's crazy. But there are 15 players in Major League Baseball. And once again, you can get caught. Oh, there's 17 because of this bonus or that. Okay. But but in, 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 in base salary, excluding all these performance bonuses, there are 15 players making north of $30 million a year. What is Otani worth? I mean, is he worth $30 million as a pitcher? 
and thirty million as a hitter? Is Otani worth sixty million dollars a year? That was the analysis I found interesting. I never thought of it like that before. But the, they were having the same debate on. Uh, I guess I was watching Sunday Night Baseball a little bit on ESPN last night, and they had the, they kind of laid it out. You know, the last three years in a pitching value and a and a hitting value. And it adds up, of course, to crazy numbers. It's sixty or seventy million dollars a year. Yep. Right. Yep. I mean, if Scherzer and Verlander and Freed, if those guys are worth—I mean, Freed's not in the contract year—but if those guys are worth in their best day thirty, thirty-five, forty million, I mean, Scherzer's making forty-three million dollars a year. I mean, do you rather have Otani or Scherzer? <laughs> Otani in a okay. Second. Let's say forty-three million as a pitcher. Um, what, what is he worth as a everyday player? I mean, he's one of the 15 best hitters in baseball. He's one of the five best cleanup hitters in baseball. I mean, Acuna's probably all around a better hitter, but Acuna's not a better player because Acuna doesn't take the mound every fifth uh, every fifth day. And, and one of the top, but I think the guy's seven and eight and five with a 3.1 some odd ERA. I mean, he's an elite pitcher, and he's an elite cleanup batter. And if an elite pitcher's worth 35 or 40 million dollars. And an elite cleanup hitter is worth thirty-five or forty million. Is this cat worth seventy to eighty million dollars? I mean, are the Dodgers, Yankees, or Mets? Because I don't know anybody else can do that. I mean, or somebody said that who is it? The Padres. They were hoarding cash. You know what I mean? That that they were probably not going to. In other words, they were going to deal before the um before the deadline, the trade deadline, to free up some cap space to allow them. This is a sports show. But, I mean, this is an interesting – I don't know that I've ever seen anything close to this. Driving down the road yesterday thinking about Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and Joe Morgan and the Big Red Machine and, you know, uh, Andy Messersmith, I think, signed the first $1 million contract ever. I remember reading in Sports Illustrated as a kid, wow, man, that's why I want to be a baseball player because you get to make a million dollars a year. I think Andy Messersmith signed the first $1 million a year contract. Could Otani sign – a $70 million a year contract? I mean, you think about the Mets and Dodgers and Yankees. I mean, could they? I mean, the Braves aren't signing. The Braves don't really need him. I mean, they've done such a good job of running their organization from the ground up. I mean, it really, the, the Braves are to be congratulated. The Braves are the most successful franchise I've ever pulled for. I mean, I grew up kind of a Baltimore Colt fan and then a Green Bay Packer fan. And then, I, anyway, I jumped around in the NFL. I've always been a Gamecock fan. But, I mean, the Atlanta Braves have been an exceptionally run baseball franchise for a pretty long time. I mean, in all honesty, now, now back in the day, it was Ted Turner and his ego. You know, go get Fred McGriff. Go get Greg Maddox. I don't care what it costs. I didn't ask you what it what it costs. Go get those guys because I'm tired of losing and I want to win. So, post-Horner Murphy, the Braves have been an exceptionally run baseball team. Now, they've only won two world championships. They probably should have won four or five in that you know extended period of time that they've been as good as they have. But but the Braves can't go out and spend seventy million dollars on on a you know on a single player. I mean they just can't do that. They they don't have the money available, nor do they have the need really. I mean I guess Otani, you could find a place for Otani to play, um, you know, in anybody's oh, yeah. lineup. But it's just I was thinking about it. I had it, it, I'm like you. It had never dawned on me that when he puts himself on the market. And it may be in the next few days, or it may be at the beginning of next year, or this summer during the offseason, this winter during the offseason. But, I mean, is somebody going to pay him, you know, what Max Scherzer makes to be a top-flight pitcher and what Mike Trout makes to be a, you know, a legitimate cleanup, bona fide superstar hitter? I think they are.
I think somebody's going to pay him somewhere in excess of 60, 65, maybe even 70 or 80 million um, dollars. That's that's crazy for a single year. I'm not talking about 80 million over eight years. I'm talking about this cat could 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 um could earn uh, or demand on the market 80 million dollars in a single season. Wow. I mean that's a staggering astronomical um sum of money. But but once again, he's two players in one. Mm-hmm. He's the Swiss Army knife of baseball. I mean, you know, he pitches every fifth day and he bets clean up and <laughs> and plays first base fairly well. So you're getting kind of two players for one. Um 40 I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll pay um we'll pay him forty two million dollars to pitch and thirty seven million to hit. I mean, I just think that's kind of where we're where we're headed, and um that breaks the model for, you know, compensated players. I think it is. If I'm a kid that can pitch and hit, and my dad says you need to stick to one or the other, and I say, I don't know, Dad. Otani did pretty good, you know, doing them both. Because <laughs> there are a lot of kids up until high school who hit and pitch. I mean, there's some kids in college that hit and pitch. But when you get drafted, we've been conditioned to believe you give up one or the other. You know, are they drafting you as a pitcher or hitter? I don't know. Um, the, the pitching gets more money, so I'll probably try to go as a pitcher. You get a draft grade. They have you as a – if you – if he declares a pitcher, you're a fifth-round choice. If he declares a hitter, you're a second-round choice. Guess what I am? I'm a hitter because <laughs> the bonus is bigger if I go in the second round. But I just think this changes the, the prospects of some of these kids who are unbelievably talented at pitching and, and hitting because historically we've been told what? You can't do both. I mean, you just can't. It's too demanding. Uh, well, I mean, I can, I can accept the demand – if you'll pay me eighty million a year, <laughs> You're darn right. I mean, that, that's crazy. I mean, that's that's just uh, anyway. It, it, you know, the, I'm listening to the radio coming home from the beach, and they start talking about sixty, seventy, eighty million. I'm going like, no, that's absurd. But then I started doing the math. You know, forty million for an elite pitcher, forty million for an elite hitter. Okay, Otani's worth eighty million dollars a year. So it makes you wonder, and this is what they speculated a little bit on television. What's the total contract? When somebody but hires it, him, is it a billion dollars? Well, at least I think they were talking seven or eight hundred million. Well, I mean, that, that's eight hundred million for eight. I mean, ten years for eight hundred million. <laughs> you know, eight hundred million for twelve years. I don't know. I mean, that's what I was thinking. I mean, do we do we get close to a billion dollar baseball contract? I mean, is this the first? Bill, remember that Lee Major is a six million dollar man. Yeah. I mean, is this is Otani the billion dollar? Baseball, and here's my point: Does it change the prospects of kids who could pitch and hit? I mean, if you see a, let's say Scherzer gets forty and Trout gets forty, or Cunha, I don't know what Acuna's number will end up being one of these days. I mean, he'll go on the market. I mean, he'd be crazy not to, and he'll find out how much the Dodgers, Yankees, and Mets are willing to pay. So, so let's say Acuna gets forty million. That's one of the better hitters in baseball, one of the better position players in baseball, and. You know, if if you're a kid, that, I mean, maybe you don't have Acuna's talent, but you got real good talent. Maybe you don't have Otani's arm, but you got a real good arm. I mean, why would you take the advice of a a coach or an agent who says concentrate on one and not the other when one pays thirty or forty million if you're really good at it, but but the other also? I mean, aren't you shorting yourself about twenty five, thirty, thirty five, forty million dollars? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just kind of an interesting. He's breaking the mold for what we're told is. Um, you know, uh, the right way to do things and what compensation is to be done. I'll predict 
what, what, 10 years, $750 million? I mean, is that kind of what we're yeah, what we're looking I think at? So. Wow! I mean, that's the GDP of Finland, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's the GDP of about half the countries in the um, in the world. That's collectively more. I don't know if you saw this or not, but the uh, the thirty one member nations. I think it's thirty two now. Um, the Sweden's a member. Um, the thirty two. Yeah, and then NATO. You know, we're big and bad now. Sweden's yeah. on board. <laughs> right. Take that, Putin. Um, <laughs> but but I think. Um, only seven of the 31 now you can't you can't lump sweden in here because you know they just joined but of the 32 31 former members i mean it's 32 today um only seven spent the um the floor in other words you've got two percent of gdp or two percent of discretionary spending has to go toward um, funding nato and only seven of the 31 nations um met that benchmark cleared that threshold um, spend as much on their military as America would like them um, to do. And, you know, w- we'll get into presidential politics here in two seconds. Um, the one thing that happened at the Tucker Carlson Blaze Media um, extravaganza is Mike Pence is done. I mean, that's just, you, you can't that say, was you can't articulate. Error. I know what he meant. I mean, you know, I think if he had a chance to kind of unravel or unwrap the package he could have better explained himself but when tucker basically pushed back on you know when when pence said something about tanks in ukraine uh, he, he, what pence is basically arguing is we can walk you gum at the same time but but when he said that's not my concern because tucker fired back and said crime is on the rise you know cities are falling apart we, we can't i mean we're spending a trillion dollars a year we don't have and pence basically said um i've heard this act before tucker and that's not my concern. You just can't say it that way. I'll tell you, um, one of the most interesting reads that I read, and it's a bit humorous. We had Tim with us um, last week, and I can't say it any better than this. It said that Tim Scott walked on stage with a hallelujah grin <laughs> and said absolutely nothing. <laughs> but but there, I'm telling you, there's great benefit to having a hallelujah grin. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, do I know you? Do I, I like, like you? you? I mean, and Tim's a very likable, likable guy. But I, I read something. I might have been in Town Hall or American Greatness where Tim Scott walked on stage with a hallelujah grin and proceeded to say absolutely nothing. Um, 843-661-0937. It is interesting. And this would be a, a kind of a, um, a proper time to talk a little bit about uh, the Republican primary. We've got some fundraising numbers. I don't know if you saw this or not over the weekend, Rev. Ron DeSantis is beginning to let some of his staff go. I think he had nine. I remember reading a uh, a month ago that he had nearly 100 people working for him. 92, I think, was the number. And I'm thinking about, I mean, I've run a campaign, burn rate. I mean, you got to stay very conscious and aware of burn rate, burn rate, burn rate, burn rate. I mean, Kaylee's in my ear. Burn rate, burn rate, burn rate. Going through your cash. Yeah, you can't burn through your cash, man. What rate are we going through the money? that we raise the big problem DeSantis has. And I mean this sincerely guys with Tucker, he was right on. And I've made them. I mean, I've made some notes here. I mean, he's dead right on the border. He's dead right on China. He's dead right on energy. He's dead right on debt. He's believable enough on America first. He just can't. And I don't understand it. I just really and truly do not understand it. He articulated what, what his solutions are for the border, China, energy, debt, better than anybody on that stage, period. Better than anybody 
on that stage. He was believable enough with America First. That's the skepticism. Better than Vivek? Uh, through, yeah. The, 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 well, I mean, I would argue that Vivek is still not a, a you know, a, a leading contender. I mean, he would be, I don't want to say he's a novel. He deserves better than that, but he ain't DeSantis. I mean, when DeSantis goes on the stage, there's legitimacy there. I mean, there's a, a believability that this guy can win the nomination. I'll ask you this. Do you believe that DeSantis can win the nomination? Absolutely. Do you believe Ramaswamy can? Um, you see where I'm headed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's you have to think about it a little sure, more. Sure. But but I'm I'm not ready to say he can't. Well, I mean, I, I, who knows? I mean, Trump won in 16. So, right. so who are we to say what uh, what could and might, and might happen? But, but it's just it's hard for me to understand. And a couple of buddies and I were talking over the weekend. It had been in politics. I mean, he, he's got a very tight plan on some of these issues. It, it makes a lot of sense. And some of the, but he just can't get himself much traction. And his bigger problem, and I went back and looked through some of the filings and open secrets, his big problem is he's raised a lot of money, but about two-thirds of all contributions made to Ron DeSantis are the maximum legal amount. I mean, that's low-hanging fruit, and they can't give again. I mean, they can give after the primary for the general, I mean, if he happens to be the nominee, but that's something. He's not raising money in small donation um, amounts. He's just not. I mean, his, he's not resonating with the masses. And on America First, he was believable enough, but but a lot of Americans at that event in particular, they think he's a shill for, you know, he's um he's a, uh, he's a globalist, masquerading as as an America First candidate. But I'm telling you, if you have a chance to listen, I mean, the questions he responded to, border, China, energy, debt, I mean, he's all over it. I mean, he really and truly is. Um, but, but when you hear a candidate this early in a campaign beginning to let staff go, ah, that's concerning. I mean, that, that, that would be genuinely by, by – I mean, if you're doing that in July – and, and, I mean, if we haven't even gotten to the first debate yet, I mean, we're a month out from uh, from debate number one, and Ron DeSantis is letting go 20, and I think there'll be another 20 or so let go. You don't need 92 people in the summer before the prime. You just don't. I mean, you don't need 92 people. There's not enough for them to do. You need about 25 or 30 people and keep that burn rate down, bank that money, stack that money to the bank. Raise money and don't spend it. Raise money and don't spend it. Raise money and don't spend it. I mean, that's just from a former candidate, that's how you win. Raise money and don't spend it. Ron DeSantis has raised a lot of money, but his burn rate is about twice as high as anybody else in the uh, in the field. Tim Scott will have his moment. I'll predict that. Now, I don't think Tim wins the nomination, but, but DeSantis, DeSantis having to lay off people and two-thirds of his money being by those given uh, the maximum legal amount. Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott will take potentially, uh, certainly, Tim Scott could steal Ron DeSantis's moment. I mean, if somebody appears at any point in time to rival Trump, I mean, I've always said it's DeSantis. No, no matter what the, the, the polls say, no matter what the numbers say, DeSantis at some point in time will get his day. I don't know. Somebody will, and it looks to me like that somebody could be Tim Scott. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. I'm going to go through through ah, through some of these fundraising numbers because there's some kind of interesting factoids in there. Back in a few. 
843-661-0937. Let's stay on DeSantis. All right, let's stay on DeSantis for just a second. So here's the concern if I'm DeSantis. I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons to be concerned. 20% is the biggest concern <laughs> I have. Right. I mean, he should be higher than, than 20%, but only about 15% of his contributions came from donors who give $200 or less. I mean, that's the smallest percentage for any of the GOP. Um, once again, he's raised a lot of money, um, but but he found a lot of low-hanging fruit. Former governor of Florida, or current governor of Florida, should be easy to raise money. I mean, it's not easy to raise money. It should be easier for him to raise money than for a lot of others. But but of the $25 million that he raised, and he raised $25 million fast, about two-thirds of that $25 million came from people who gave the maximum legal amount they can't give again. I mean, that, that, see, that's that's a big deal. He, I mean, he, they can give if he's the nominee, uh, you know, but but they can't give again because they they've got these maximum um, contributions. But 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 I think he did as good a job as any. I mean, I think he did a better job than anybody at border, China, energy, debt. Um, and and I really wanted to hear him pushed on America first, and he was believable. I mean, I, I'm not saying he was. You know, Ramaswamy, I think Ramaswamy has America First figured out better than anybody except maybe J.D. Vance. And Ramaswamy's probably a little more charismatic in his um in his pronouncements uh, than J.D. Vance is. But but here's what I'm predicting. And, I, you know, this is simply uh, what I think will happen eventually. It, it was always believed that when Trump's legal problems became front and center, some voters would shy away. And they would look somewhere else. I mean, you know Trump's been indicted, but he's not in a courtroom, right? I mean, we're not reading and hearing about a trial. You know, Trump casually talked about top-secret information. Uh, Trump, you know, gleefully and jokingly mishandled classified documents. You know that's the narrative that is coming. He's irresponsible. He's juvenile. He's a child. Um, you know, he's not the kind of guy that we need in the White House. Not serious enough. Not cerebral enough. You know that's coming. Well, that's not going to affect the Trump diehards, but there's some soft Trumpsters out there that, that will be inclined to look somewhere else. And I've always felt at that moment in time, and Trump's not crazy, why is he trying to, to delay the trial? I mean, Trump doesn't want a trial in the middle of a campaign. I mean, he's not a moron. There's nothing good about Trump being on trial, right? Wouldn't think so. But, but I mean, evidence maker, now, now unless, we, unless there is something there that we don't know about, unless Trump has a great, defense strategy and that defense strategy makes it even more obvious rev was talking about ramaswamy finishing second in the straw poll to trump trump gets 85 percent of the vote but i mean that's tucker carlson and blaze media but I mean, that's not the rank and file republican voter that's a i mean that that's an extreme subset that's unfair to say extreme that's a very dedicated subset how about that i mean that's a very dedicated um subset i don't know what extreme is any longer but i've always felt once Trump has to address publicly some of these misgivings, soft Trumpsters will start looking around to see if anybody's appealing or attractive. And and I've always felt this, that, that's when DeSantis would surge. That's when DeSantis would say, you know, okay, I mean, you know, we waited our we waited for our moment. It's here. Here's why you need to consider us. And if he gives the same remarks on uh, the border China energy debt America first that he did uh, at, at uh, Tucker's event <laughs> Tucker's event then um then he'll you know he'll be a a likely suspect for folks to kind of gravitate toward but but something tells me 
that, and, and I'm just, I'm trying to make too much out of this. I mean, I'm looking at, uh, you know, the donors who are giving $200 or less. I'm looking at the, the two-third who have given the max contribution. I'm looking at, you know, 92 people working on his team, and he still only get 20%. I mean, what has he learned about it? Running for president's a different animal. I mean, I don't know. I've never run. But, but, I mean, I know how hard it is to run statewide in a small state. Running for president is just another animal. I mean, it takes a, a complete and, and totally different dimension. I mean, it's something that you think you're ready for until it's time, and then you realize how daunting it really is. Well, Tim, to me, and I've got no idea who's giving Tim advice, but Tim appears to me uh, to, to, to have engaged in Iowa on this, you know, this personal story, uh, you know, uh, God and country and I mean it's a little bit faith family I mean it's just the traditional Republican um, message and it works in Iowa so let's say Tim because I I, mean, I I think there's a chance he wins Iowa I mean I really believe that there's a chance that Tim Scott wins Iowa believe that. Um, I, okay. I do I really believe I don't, I'm not saying he will because there are a lot of things that can happen between now and um, in July of next year excuse me January of next year we're about six months from the first ballot being cast in the Republican primary. But when you look at the cash on hand, I mean, he's not going to run out of money. I mean, he's simply not. He's going to be on the debate stage. He's going to quit himself fairly well in the debate stage. Um, with all due respect, and, and I'll give the writer from um, Town Hall or American Greatness the credit, he's going to have that hallelujah grin, you know, that seems to be kind of, um, I don't know, just a nice guy. Tim's a nice person, uh, a decent man. Um, does he attack the issues like DeSantis? No, I mean, he doesn't. Tim doesn't give thorough answers. Um, DeSantis provides a level of depth that I think only, I think Haley, I mean, I think Nikki did well in explaining, um, there's, there's certain things you can't say guys, and you got to know you can't say it, especially at, you know, a Tucker Carlson event with blaze media, the co-host, you can't say, I think Trump lost. I don't care what you believe. You can't say that there. You can say that sitting down with the Wall Street Journal editorial board. You can say that in, uh, in, you know, sitting with some potential donors at Wall Street. I mean, you can, of course you can say that, but you've got to know your audience (laughs) and you've got to have a better answer for, you know, um, yes, some things happened, but Trump still lost. There is no way you could have convinced me to, to say that. So, you know, the two people that I think hurt themselves the most, were Nikki Haley and Mike Pence because it just that's a little bit tone deaf. Um, that's not my concern. You know, I mean, the man's talking about ravaging cities and opioid abuse, and 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 I know what Pence meant, and and he meant you know we can walk and chew gum, we can do um two things at once. I mean, we're the greatest nation on the planet Earth. We can you know tend to our own business here domestically and be you know c- kind of a guardian of safety and or guardian of democracy. Uh, around the world, but he didn't say that. He said, that's not my concern, Tucker. And I've heard that two bit, you know, that two bit part from you uh, before. And it came across as, wow. So Pence is done. I mean, Pence has no chance to get, I mean, he'll be on the debate stage, but I mean, he's, he's, um, he's yesterday's news. Hmm. He's, he's, um, he's just, he's a flavor that nobody wants any longer. And, and it's still interesting to me that people at the National Review and the Wall Street Journal believe there's an upside for people like Christie. And and uh, and uh, and Christie didn't show up, you know, because Christie likes to go on ABC News and be tough guy, and NBC News and CBS News. That seems to be Christie's strategy, and it's probably a good strategy. 
if you're a never-Trumper. I mean, it's probably sound strategy to go to places that hate Trump, and you come off as the guy that says, you know, Trump's not serious. He's not the guy we need uh, to be in charge of the Republican Party moving. Uh, anyway, um, but, but Christie and Pence are yesterday's news. What about Asa Hutchinson? He had a uh, moment with Tucker as yeah, well. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I think T.S. Tucker, how many vaccines he's taken? Yeah. Um, and uh, Tucker said zero. Uh, and, you know, but, but Hutchinson's, I don't know why. He, he must want to be an adjunct professor somewhere, <laughs> you know, and he can say former presidential candidate. He might want uh, to sell Relaxium uh, on well, TV. He might, he might. I mean, he might follow Mike Huckabee and sell coloring books and and, and relax you, but I doubt he's selling coloring books of Donald Trump. You know, I doubt Ace Hutchinson will do that. But well, what um, about Tucker's stock? I mean, he's kind of the focus of this thing well, right I mean, to now. Me, I mean, to me, and, and he's the most prominent Republican in America today. I mean, outside of Trump. I mean, t- Tucker, people care what Tucker Carlson says more than they care what anybody else says in America today. Now, now should they? I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. You know, Tucker is, is at times extreme, but but he is a very, very, um, I'll tell you, the thing Tucker has done that most people in that business have not done is the time of the neocon camp. He's a convert. Bongino's not a convert. Clay Travis is not a convert. Jesse Waters is not a convert. I'm giving another. A Laura Ingram is not a convert. Tucker cut his teeth in neoconservatism. Is Tucker's stock higher after being fired from Fox than it was <sighs> on Fox? His stock is higher amongst the intense universe that keep up with this day by day. I think time will tell. What you're asking basically is, can Tucker be the most relevant political pundit in America without being on Fox News at 8 p.m.? I mean, can he find a forum, a medium that allows him to be in five million homes every single night for an hour? I don't know. I don't have any idea what the answer to that is. I mean, that that's going to be a strategy. We saw where he had twenty million views of a you know that that introductory uh, Twitter feed. I, where, where that goes from there, I don't have any idea. Um, the unpredictability of Twitter, the unpredictability of that audience. But but I think Tucker has the unique qualification of having been one of them it's a little bit like the trump mystique remember dave chappelle called donald trump an honest liar the reason people find trump interesting is they think he's been in that room when some of those decisions are made the reason i find personally can't speak for you the reason i find tucker interesting he sat at the desk with bill crystal and george will and some of these um historically great neoconservative commentators and pundits. Um, he's talked personally to Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld and, and some of these others about neoconservatism. He studied um, that. He's a convert. And he's been willing to say, I believed all that craziness far too long. I'm smarter than that. And and then he'll go down the road, you know, the, the Iraq war, weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. But, but how relevant Tucker can become in a movement leader, I don't know. I, I don't have any idea what the answer to that is. He's very talented. He's very smart. Uh, he seems to be a hard worker. Um, and he seems to be rededicated himself to kind of being a force of action in the America First uh, political movement. This is kind of an – I'll tell you the more interesting question to Fox. Will Fox be forced to get back in bed with Trump? 
I mean, I think I think that Fox, is interesting. I think Fox flew the DeSantis flag in anticipation of that being a hotly contested primary between you know Ron DeSantis, hot commodity, right? I mean, he was a hot. To- I mean, no, he's a hot item, and Donald Trump. Who is Donald Trump? I mean, America's made its mind up about Trump. Some like, some don't like. But I think Fox really, uh, behind closed doors, said, let's fly this DeSantis flag as high and long as we can and see what sort of reaction we get. And unless something changes after the August 23rd debate, I think Fox is going to be forced, if they want to keep their audience, to, to, to kind of get back in line with, with Donald Trump as the standard bearer of the America First uh, political movement. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays. To make Fridays, we'll take a break. Be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. If someone has two ninety nine to spare and you get Amazon Prime, I would strongly encourage you to watch the documentary, The Men Who Stole the World. I mean, it really and truly, kind of blow by blow, line by line, walks you through some of the, um, uh, some of the characteristics of the people in charge of what happened in 207, 08, 09, they, they never faced any judgment or penalty. There's this one guy who said, I mean, he went to jail. I mean, he, he did some things in the, in the housing market or housing sector that he shouldn't have done. And he went to jail, but he said, you know, I didn't work for Citibank. I didn't work for Goldman. I didn't work for J.P. Morgan. I didn't work for BlackRock. I didn't work for, for Vanguard. I'm beginning to believe what my dad always told me. And I thought my dad was off the reservation when he would say, son, there's a thousand people that run the world and we're all at their mercy. And I'd always say, nah, man, I mean, that's, that's crazy. I mean, a thousand that's people, well, I, mean, I, I don't know what the number is. I don't know if it's a thousand people, but it's the black rock vanguards. Uh, it's the men who stole the world. What, what do we say about uh, Joe Biden stole the election fair and square? Well, I mean, the argument this Amazon documentary says is, you know, that, that they never, if you have the ability to turn a, a million into a billion, a billion into a trillion, and, and there's impunity if you get caught. Why not? I mean, why wouldn't you risk everything to turn a million into a billion, a billion into a trillion if you know um, you know, that you're in the good graces of the government, good, bad, or indifferent? I mean, why wouldn't you? And, and these people are hyper-capitalist anyway. I mean, they're smart, very capable. Um, I mean, I'm not saying they're, they're, they're all bad people, but they're motivated by a very, very greed-oriented uh, perception of the world and that you know what, what is what is the what is the benefit of making good decisions you know to become financially independent what what is the what is the downfall of making bad decisions well when they're hitting any you know when the bailouts come and you, you see where i'm headed i mean impunity is is a big deal i mean when, when people go into business dealings believing there is not in, in other words if you go into a business deal and you understand that world Better than anybody, you say, there's no way the government can let us fail. There's just no way. I mean, go, you, don't, you don't think somebody at Goldman didn't tell somebody else at Goldman, hey, man, if this thing blows up, the government's got to bail us out. I mean, there's no way they'll let all of us go under. There's no way. Well, I mean, if you, if you take that sort of greed combined with that degree of impunity, I mean, any of us would have probably done the same thing, wouldn't we? I mean, we're no better than they are at the end of the day, are we? I mean, we're not in their position, but but if you had a chance to turn a million into a billion or a billion into a trillion, and you knew on the other side the government had your back, are you telling me you wouldn't try it? Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on the air. Yeah, the question is, why did the government have their back? 
But anyway, you were talking earlier, and, you know, I think the problem with uh, DeSantis, he sort of reminds me of uh, Douglas MacArthur. You know, everybody loved him until he ran for president, but he couldn't ring the bell. You know, and he told by Tim Scott, I don't know if this matters what I owed him, but if you really want to know who the first African-American president would be, it would be him. And he could, you know, that's just a fact. And then, you know, but I'll tell you what I'm thinking also. If I was the Democrat apparatus or whatever, I would not be thinking of running Joe Biden. And it amazes me how calm they are. I think I would uh, get rid of Biden and not uh, put that boy from California with him, that Gavin Newsom, and then uh, put that crazy lady from uh, Michigan in there with him. And I, I also think that uh, you can't win an election unless you can get 82 million votes, however you can get them. And I think right now it doesn't matter who uh, the Republican Party runs. They are not set up to get the 82 billion votes through hook, crook, or whatever that the Democrats are. That's why they aren't even in the least bit concerned. And I don't think we'll ever get our country back from your vanguards and your black rocks. They run the they run the world now. They run all of the politicians. They run all of the government. They run all of the media. If you look who owns Fox News, it's not Fox News. You look who owns the stock of Fox News, you look who owns the stock of CNN, you look who owns all of the food processing plants, who has all the stock in that. You know, we we right now have zero power over our lives, zero freedom over our lives. You think you didn't take the vaccine, you're taking it every time you eat a, eat, eat a, eat a pork chop. They're putting that, that uh, mRNA vaccine, uh, that, that's, uh, they're putting all of that stuff in our animals. They will get it to us one way or another. We're powerless to do anything. It's very frustrating, and I don't know how to help fight them other than raise the cane like we're doing right now. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. How many people really believe that? I mean, you know, we live in a, in an era or an age where it's pretty easy to believe in some of these conspiracies. But but how many believe? And how many? I mean, that's a weird question. A weird way to phrase the question. Are, are there Americans out there? Serious-minded Americans. Now, now, once again, I don't get to define serious-minded Americans. I mean, my identification of a serious-minded American may be different than Rez, may be different than Josh's, but there's a theory out there. I mean, if you want to play this out to the most extreme imaginable, we're talking about the men who stole the world. Um, I, you know, I, I, there's some truth in there. There's probably some things that, I mean, if you had to really if you had a trial against the men who stole the world, you know, how many, how many men would be found guilty of how many crimes? Well, let me, let me back up. How many men would be found guilty of how many sins? I, I think sins is a better word here than, than, uh, than crimes. I mean, you know, so, some of these are, I mean, they, they, they're in the abstract. I mean, is it, is it criminal to have a trillion dollars? No. Is it sinful? I don't know. I mean, where's the morality, immorality line of demarcation? I don't know. I mean, what, what, are, what is Josh willing to do to make a billion bucks? I mean, is Josh willing to, to bend the rules and, and, you know, bend the, I guess? I mean, I would imagine. Um, where, where did I read somewhere? Um, you know, you, there's, nobody's ever come up with a good enough idea to become a billionaire. I think Warren Buffett may have said something to that effect. Um, you you kind of play the game. You play... You play the system. Warren Buffett talked about the economy at its best is when a man builds a factory, and the factory is profitable enough for him to go build another factory. 
And that factory becomes profitable enough to build another factory. And the next thing you know, we've got six or eight or 10 or 12 factories and he's, an, he's enormously wealthy. But, but where is that? I mean, see, when we get into wealth creation and money and income inequality, I mean, sure, there's a morality and immorality here. Um, what, what's the old line of the first Wall Street? You know, how many boats are too many? You know, how many boats do you need to ski behind Gordon? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't get to say what the, what the answer to that is. But there's an absolute consequence to, uh, you know, a few Americans having, or a few people in the world, a few world global citizens having such a high percentage of our wealth. So if you want to play this out to the nth degree, and you're talking about wealth and influence and control and power, which is what motivates the majority of men. I didn't say all men, but the majority of men to some degree are motivated by wealth, income, influence, power. Uh, I think it's in our genes. I think it's the way we're designed. I think it's the way we're we're built and made up. But but how many people, I mean, there are people out there who believe that the, the Wuhan uh, institution, Institute of Virology, you know, what was kind of a, a pawn of the game and the, the folks who run the World Economic Forum, the Klaus Schwab's of the world, I mean, this was about, you know, limiting Western prosperity. This was about, I mean, you know, I, I read something this morning. I wrote something down, limiting Western freedom. I mean, the great reset, I sound like Glenn Beck now, the great reset, the revolutionary reset. I mean, there are a lot of different ways people categorize this. And this is interesting reading. I mean, you know, I don't know what, what, what of this I believe and what of this I don't believe because it gets real curious and it's a bit entertaining, to be honest with you. But there's some out there who believe that COVID was a trial balloon, that the Wuhan Virology Institute uh, allowed the, you know, the, uh, the escape of a, vi- of a virus that led to the creation of a vaccine that led to you being mandated uh, to take the, I mean, I don't know that I believe this or not. I don't have any idea, but, but there, there are, you know, a percentage of people out there in the world that believe that all of this was intentional. All of, all of this was very, very intentional um, to find out what sort of, now, now I do believe this. I believe the, ah, the World Economic Forum desires less independence amongst governments. I mean, I, I, globalist in theory, I mean, I, I think they would rather have that this central authority, not just for America, but for the world, NATO, World Health Organization, some of these transnational groups that, you know, we, um, I say we, I don't, but, but a lot of our leaders look to to decide you know, uh, what did the WHO say? What did NATO say? What did, you see where I'm headed? Uh, what, what did the United Nations say about this? Climate change. We defer a lot, a lot of this to the United Nations. Um, I think that the, the motivation of the World Economic Forum is to have kind of a global culture, global society um, removed from some sort of independent local government independent state government, independent federal. I mean, I do believe there's a, the Klaus Schwab's of the world. I mean, he makes no bones about that. And I don't think you can completely dismiss that as total nonsensical conspiracy theory. Because I think there are people with enormous influence and power in our world that ascribe to some of those um, same notions. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Brian in Florence. Good morning, Brian. You're on the air. A couple of things. Uh, you know, I used to think Alex Jones was crazy, and all his conspiracy theories were out in the left field. And uh, quite frankly, he's been proven right on a lot of them. So it's not been that long ago that Alex Jones was a complete nut, nutcase, and then lo and behold, he was right about a lot of stuff he said. The second thing, uh, our so-called VP 
during a speech, I believe it was yesterday, mentioned population control. Bill Gates mentioned population control. I absolutely think COVID was something that was trying to get the population under control. There's a lot more to this stuff than what uh, the normal everyday person uh, ever hears or sees or, quite frankly, believes. But there's definitely some some things going on in the upper echelons of power that are the conspiracies that Alex Jones and others talk about. I'm convinced that 100% now. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. 843 843- Six six one zero nine three seven. Yeah, I think her exact quote, the vice president said, "Reduce population." I think she meant reduce pollution. Oh, that's or, what they said. Well, I mean, so she says that's the spin that, that she. Well, let me ask you this: well, How much Freudian of that do you slip. believe? I mean, Josh, how much of that do you believe? Um, uh, how, how much when, when I go and I do this for entertainment? I mean, I'm trying to provoke. I want to. I want to find out where people land in the uh, in, in the scale of believability or not. So, so if I were to sit down with Josh and say, "You're, you're a 25 year old smart guy." So if I said, Josh, here's what I think's up, man. I think the World Economic Forum were behind the Wuhan virology lab leak. And I think the lab leak was to create a pandemic that would lead to government agencies all over the world trying to figure out how much of society they could really and justly control. And this is kind of the, um, this is the preamble of where we're headed. That there are there are unbelievably powerful people and corporations who have a burning desire to limit Western civilization's freedom, uh, mobility, flexibility, uh, you know, discretion. You choose how you live your life. I choose how I how I live my life. There's a very that there's a very exclusive group of men and women who believe that their calling is to organize society in such a structured way that transnational organizations instead of local and state governments have not full authority, but most authority in directing your paths. You would believe 10% of that, 90% of that, somewhere between the two. Um, I would say in terms of percentage points, I, I can't really give you a good answer. Maybe, maybe 20% okay. or, or more. I'm you not believe really some sure. of it, but not most of it. Um, I would say... I would say most of it. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me change up a little bit. Okay. I'm going to say most of it. And if I could make a quick point on, on that, I would say that like to what uh, Brian was saying about COVID and whatnot, I think that what you, uh, definitely it was used as a way to kind of poke or prod the the spirit of Western civilization and to kind of see how much whether it was intentional or not, I can't honestly say. Um, but I don't think it was a population Once reduction Once the opportunity thing. presented itself, exactly. there was a game that very powerful people had the ability to play. Is that fair? Yeah. Whether I mean, you, they you're not saying they, they intentionally allowed the, the leak of, of, the, of the virus. They may have, that, but that I don't led know. To, well, that, and I think that's where I kind of mm-hmm. land. But I have no idea. I mean, you know, Trump even says it probably just incompetence. You know, pr- probably uh, people toying around with something they shouldn't have been toying around with. Uh, it is. It escapes. I, I think we know now. I mean, I think the. I don't want to say the evidence is indisputable, but the evidence is fairly clear now that COVID was not, you know, at some wet market. I mean, it was a lab leak. I mean, the majority of serious, smart people now even agree. I mean, I'm not talking about Fauci because I don't think Fauci's serious. I think he's smart. I don't think he's serious at all. I think Fauci plays a game, and I think he's played a game for a well, long, he has long, to cover long his time. butt a little bit now because he may be involved well, in I mean, funding. He, he was an investor. I mean, the federal exactly. government was an investor in so in some of these. He lab can't leaks. really admit. So let's go down that extreme track, Rev. You believe how much of that? 
I I have to consider it. I I don't know that I would would buy that it was you know all invented to get this result. Um, but I would consider. It. I would say you know what it's possible because you ask why someone would want to structure Western society. Well, if you look at other societies and look at the way Putin runs Russia and Xi runs China, I mean they've got the deal set up pretty good in their favor and they've got certain you know levels of control and it works out for them so. Why not? <laughs> you, we have a. Um, <laughs> Am I in my office? Let me, no, no, I, mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. Um, I believe some of this and some of this I don't believe. Um, I believe that once we had the pandemic, that there were certain people who have waited on that opportunity and seized on that opportunity to 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 basically. And I do think there was some human um, experimenting in here. By that I mean I do believe. Let, let's see how much of their lives they will allow us to control. I mean, it is an experimental drug, but let's see what percentage of Americans will give in once we, um, you know, once we, uh, they can't fly on a plane, they can't work their job, they can't go to school, they can't uh, apply to college. I mean, see all these things that government was in control of. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, that's, but at the center of this political realignment we're dealing with is the renowned suspicion of government. I mean, it, it's it's so exclaimed today. I mean, it's so prevalent today. People do not trust the federal government. That's our only saving grace. In other words, you know, could this backfire? And by that I mean, could we have? I don't want to say produced a pandemic. I mean, I, I don't have any. I, there's no evidence whatsoever to show they did it on purpose. But there's a lot of evidence to say it leaked from the Wuhan virology lab. But there's no evidence at all that says, hey, China, um, China worked with the W Economic Forum, the World Economic Forum, the World Economic Forum worked with the United Nations. There are some people who believe that. But, that, you know, I, I don't want to say a, a large percentage of Americans, but there's some out there that believe every bit of this was intentional. I mean, it was a, an intentional leak. And, and uh, patient zero, one, and two were put on a plane and flown to LAX. And out of that came, you know, they knew it was highly contagious, uh, an airborne pathogen. They, they knew that plexiglass wouldn't stop it and masks wouldn't stop it. But, um, but combine that with, uh, you know, this burning desire that people have to control other people's lives. Putin is a very powerful political figure. Xi, very powerful political figure. If you asked an American politician, do you want more or less power, how many would honestly say less power? Now, if you say, hey... Would you like to have the power that Putin has? Would you like to have the power that Xi has? I, I don't have any idea what their heart says. I know what they're, I mean, they don't know how to fix their mouth to say, no, I want less power. I'm for a republic. I'm for democracy. I'm for people being able uh, to choose their own course. But, but I, I, it, it's such a, but, but it's still the crux of where we are today. And I think the pandemic is a reflection of the, the I don't know, the, the increasing suspicion that people have of their government, but let's go back to impunity. I mean, all these people who said, I know I'm right about the vaccine. I know I'm right about the lockdown. I know I'm right about social distancing. I know I'm right about the mask. Very few of those people were right. What is the consequence of being wrong? I mean, if you're Goldman, Vanguard, BlackRock, and and you, you know, were involved in the housing fiasco of 07, 08, 09, 2010, but there's impunity. I mean, you took these unbelievable risk, and you made unbelievable sums of money, and it blows up. 
and you're made whole by the federal government. I think when 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 people began directing the paths of others regarding um, COVID, and we found out you don't know what you're talking about. But what's the consequence of being wrong? There is none. I mean, if you're in the government's graces, there is no consequence to being wrong. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a few. So should we even put this on the table? I mean, Josh is a reasonable man. Rev is a reasonable man. I have the ability at times to be reasonable. So, so should we <laughs> should we put that on the table? I mean, it, does that diminish our opinion if we allow ourselves to be uh, to kind of go down that road, Rev? And how far down that road um, do we go? I've been in politics, guys. I mean, understand. I think the only uh, validation that I have for having a radio, I've been there. I mean, I, I know what, or I know to some degree how the game is played, and I know the shiny object theory. Uh, you know, I, I kind of know the way some of the sausage is made. Now, I'm not talking about local and, and state. I'm talking about the federal level. It's a different animal. I mean, there's so much more at stake. Unbelievable amounts of power reside in the chambers of both um, Senate and and the uh, the House, the White House, Executive Branch, Supreme Court, uh, the FBI, the CIA, the IRS. Some of the, these government agencies have unbelievable amounts of power. Well, I mean, if you have an unbelievable amount of power, or are you motivated every day to relinquish that power or, or maintain that power or increase uh, the amount of power you have? See, I believe that, that, that there's kind of a syndrome. And I think you, when you get in charge of a government agency, you, you've kind of arrived and, and you, you feel like you have a lot of credibility, and you probably do. And, and all of a sudden, you've got to earn that credibility. So they put me in charge of this government agency because they think I know how to run this government agency. And you begin to, I mean, it's not the God complex. I'm not arguing that it's a God complex, but I could. I mean, I could easily argue that once someone becomes the director of the FBI, that they do feel like they are kind of the pinnacle of what needs to be done or doesn't need to be done in regards to government commanding of its people to do X, Y, or Z. Um, but, but, you know, reasonable people now are beginning to put formerly unreasonable things on the table. Is that fair? I mean, do you agree with that, Rev? Absolutely. The example comes to mind. Isn't there chatter about the JFK assassination and the CIA's possible involvement, right? But so, so have we taken the government at its word? I mean, that was a crazy conspiracy theory for all these years. Well, I mean, but but think about it. I, I, got, a, <laughs> I got a friend of mine. He, he does the best job of anybody I know. And he's a kind of a hunter, uh, not a marksman, but a hunter. And he tries to explain. I'm not a hunter. So he tries to explain to me, you know, the shot and the other shot. And, and I'll say, yeah, and he did it with some sort of, um, like, like not automatic weapon. Yeah, manual. You know, yeah, manual, yeah, whatever. I mean, I don't understand that as well as, as others do. And, and then he always looks at me and he says, and the car was moving. <laughs> <laughs> the way he says it, I mean, the way he says it, he's just like, and the car was moving. You know, like, dude, you're not going to shot you got to be to do that. Well, what is the name of the gun? I mean, it's, just, it's the gun, you, you know, the, it doesn't. Well, what am I trying to say yeah, here? Just, just you, a, you know, man, I can yeah, see it as clear as anything, yep. and there's an official name for it. I'm just not a gun enthusiast nor an outdoorsman. Um, but but he always adds, Andy Carl was moving. In other words, I don't know if I believe what they're what they're telling me or not. Mm-hmm. So so when we get there, what does the world what does America look like? And I pose this question to our listeners. What does America look like when it's federal government? I mean the buck stops there, right? When, when the federal government loses the moral authority, not of 10 or 15 or 20%, it's always had that. 
I mean, you've always had 20% or so of Americans who didn't believe a damn thing the government said. They would try to convince you to not believe it. And we'd marginalize those people. Uh, you know, we, we'd call them fringe. You could, I mean, Alec Jones, you know, someone brought up him a few moments ago. RFK Jr. would be somewhat of a conspiracy theorist. Um, but, but now, all of a sudden, some of the conspiracies come true. That 20% turns into what? I don't know what that percentage is. Um, some people aren't. Some people still aren't socially comfortable going down that road. I mean, in, in their heart, they kind of believe, I don't know, man, something doesn't make sense here. You know, so, something just doesn't add up here. But but I've got this life, and I've got this job, and i got this career, and it's a lot easier to maintain, you know, if I kind of go along and get along and don't stir but so much of of the mud off the bottom of the pond. And, and I, I you know, I'll let the guy on the radio do that, and I'll let Tucker do some of that, and I'll... You know, every now and then I'll sneak off online and read something about it, and it gets my curiosity. Uh, but but I'm not I'm not going um, down that road. I believe, and I have no statistical analysis to base this on. I believe the majority of Americans today are very skeptical of nearly everything the federal government says. Now, now your your public pronouncements are one thing. You know where where you stand. Uh, you know. I'm a Biden supporter. I'm a Trump supporter. I'm a DeSantis supporter. I'm a, you know, I'm a, um, I want Gavin Newsom to be president. I mean, there's a, a wide range of political dispositions, but I think the majority of Americans, is it 51 or 61 or 72%? I don't know, but I think the majority of Americans today find their federal government to be untrustworthy. And, and I've said it, I'll say it again. I, I want to be a part of adding to that number. I want to be, I mean, I, you know, it, it's, it's my opinion is, and, and I've said last week, my opinion, when someone gives me a medium to express my opinion, it's got to be validated by some semblance of fact. I mean, well, what do I interpret to be true? I mean, you know, my opinion is, um, is meaningless unless there's some substantiation. In other words, I have a hunch. Something tells me. So something instinctively inside me says, hey, th- this this looks like something to be curious about. I got to go read and learn and understand and talk to people and hear both sides of the equation. And then I come back and say, guys, I had this hunch. And this hunch is, I think, led me down the right road. Or there's not as much gravy here as I imagined there would be. I mean, you know, and I've done it both ways. I mean, it, a hunch says, you know, this is the case. And I go down that road. And not only is that the case, there's a lot more there than I ever imagined. Um, and I think if you start down the road of the government's not to be trusted, I mean, we had an 11-day investigation into someone bringing cocaine <laughs> into the White House, and we're told after 10 days we couldn't find out who it was. We're ending the investigation. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, how, you know, for 10 days we look for someone who brought cocaine into the White House, we decided the Secret Service, uh, you know, one of the most, I, I don't know, the, the most secure residents in the world and one of the most um, elite forces, police forces in all of the land, and, you know, the most secure residents in the world, the most elite or one of the most elite police forces in the world, and in 10 days they decide we don't know whose it is and we're, we're not looking any longer. Mm-hmm. And we're to not be suspicious about that. Well, we're to accept yeah. that as true. What are you covering up? Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea what you're covered up, but but I don't. But it makes you ask the question. Yeah, I mean, I mean you, common sense here, well, I mean, right? But but nobody asked the question anymore. 
that that's exactly. that that's where we've gotten ourselves. Nobody's asking the question anymore. What do you mean we're calling off an investigation after ten days? We don't have any suspects. Did you know? You know how many people they interviewed? I mean, guess how many people the Secret Service interviewed about uh, dur- during the ten day investigation? They interviewed exactly zero. <laughs> they did not conduct a field interview in the entire investigation. And we, the people, to believe that they're truly and and seriously trying to get to the bottom of it. I don't know if it's Hunter Biden's. I don't know if it's a, a worker, as um as Jake Sullivan says. He didn't say it was the worker, but he implied the worker. You know, those folks you can smell at Walmart. You know, the uh, they wear these MAGA hats. You know, it could have been those workers because we're working on the sitcom. Excuse me, the sit uh the situation. Sit room. Yeah, they call it sit room is what he calls it. Um I mean, it certainly <laughs> could have been sitcom. Well, I mean, it's kind of a sitcom. <laughs> You're right. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Morning. So a lot of people don't understand what Secret Service does, okay? Protecting the president is a very minor part of what the Secret Service does. They're the ones that protect our money supply. They go after counterfeiters. And they're very good at what they do. Uh, United States has a pretty good record on, on uh, busting counterfeiters in this country. So you're right. They're an elite uh, investigative service. So the only thing I, the only conclusion I can come to is either they're not an elite investigative service, that they're completely incompetent, or they're liars, one or the other. Now, Ken, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on how much people trust the government. Okay? Now, I know that myself, after the whole Desert Storm thing, after everything else that went on, I have become very leery of the Republican Party, but I truly believe that Democrats, I don't care what the people in power do, if they're a Democrat, I don't think they can do any wrong according to the rest of the Democrats. I think that they're on board, they don't care what they do as long as they win because they got their hand out and they just want, they want, they want, and as long as they think that the the, the, uh, controlling uh, group is doing them a solid, then they're all for them. I think that they're on the Biden train. I think that they trust the government much more than we do, than conservatives do. And I think there's a big difference. Uh, morally, I see the other party over there as being bankrupt. Uh, I just do. And I, I think that the people who vote for those people are morally bankrupt. And that's just the way I see the Democrat Party. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. So, so, so if we find the government to be untrustworthy, why? I mean, do you not believe that Democrats believe in bigger government? I mean, we're spending, I looked this morning, we're spending about $63,000 a second that we don't have. That translates to about $3.78 million a minute, $226,800 million, excuse me, $226,800,000 an hour. We're spending about $5.14 billion a day that we don't have. I mean, is, is that, is, is the, are the Democrats spending that money, and the Republicans for that matter, on things that they believe in? I mean, I, I think we, and, and this is where I get real confused. So when, when the Democrats want to do something, whatever it is, they, they want to forgive student debt. 
I mean, am, am I opposed to that because I just don't trust the government to do what they say they're going to do? Or do I do I just fundamentally disagree with the notion of somebody who didn't go to college? You see where I'm headed? I mean, what does that have to do with trustworthiness? I mean, if, if somebody's a collectivist and a redistributionist and a socialist, and 58% of Democrat voters today are socialist, and they see no problem with, you know, um, Rev and I not going to college but being responsible for a certain percentage of Josh's student debt or whomever's student debt who did go to college, I mean, is, is that does that add to the untrustworthiness, or is that simply something we fundamentally disagree with? The role of government is not to reallocate or reappropriate uh, money, but so extensively. I, I, see, that's where I get my myself confused. I don't like the notion of paying off student debt or, or those who didn't go to college, didn't incur debt, paying off student debt. But but is that a fundamental disagreement I have with a liberal Democrat? Or or does that, you know, I just don't trust the government to do what they say they're they're going to do. To, to me, that's a fundamental disagreement we have. I think the... Um, I think the untrustworthiness we have of our government is much more, much more deep-rooted um, than that. 843-661-0937. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Hey, every now and then we break from politics for a second or two or three when there's a story that I find interesting. It's, uh, it's obviously tragic, but it is very interesting. And the most interesting part of this is, you know, Rib, there's enough that we know to be afraid of in society. And and then when when we hear a story like uh, these murders in was it Gilgo Beach uh, in in New York City or that's not New York City it's in New York but not uh, in the city itself Fox News Radio's Tanya Powers is in New York City if I'm not mistaken uh, Good morning Tanya How are you Hey Good morning I'm good How are you So where exactly is Gilgo Beach It's on Long Island um, It is in Suffolk County. And that's not very far from from New York City. It's a it's a good little train ride, but it's not you know a long way. Um, it is where in 2010, uh, late in 2010, that's when remains started being found of women. Um, there was a and there have been books written on this. There have been I think movies and maybe documentaries that kind of thing. Uh, matter of fact, if anybody read Nelson DeMille's book The Maze last year, he had a uh, you know a new new book out with a new novel. It was kind of based on this. Um, this is where he that's where he drew you know largely for the plot of that book. So if all this sounds a little familiar, that probably is why. Um, but in 2010, there was a woman who had uh, called 911. She was a, a sex worker. She had been running from a client's home who died, when she called 911 said somebody was chasing her. So they started looking for her in December of 2010. That is when they found the remains of another woman who had last seen, been seen alive the year before that. They kept looking and this is a, a like a really overgrown area. Uh, it was real, you know, they kind of had to scour it. It's pretty, it was a remote area. It was not, you know, uh, you know, kind of, it wasn't like your, your typical, you know, maybe beach you're thinking of where, you know, there's, there's no overgrowth or anything like that. This was, this was, you know, quite the investigation because they had to get through all of that stuff. Um, then they kept finding remains of, of other, other people. Uh, in all, I believe there were nine women, one man and a toddler uh, whose remains had been found. And they had been, you know, trying to solve this mystery for years and then thanks to the fact that there was you know dna testing available now that was not available at the time 
that is one of the things that has helped them, you know, crack this and kind of get a break in it. And, of course, last week there was the arrest of uh, 59-year-old Rex Hewerman, who is an architect uh, here in Midtown Manhattan, lives out on Long, Long Island in Massapequa Park. Uh, there was a lot of activity around his house. Turns out the night before they had taken him into custody after using some of that advanced DNA technology that's available now to, you know, pin it to him and basically say, okay, well, he's responsible for at least some of these. That's why they have charged him in the murders of three of these people. Uh, prosecutors say he is a prime suspect in a fourth one. Um, that's just so far what kind of what we know. So, Tanya, how does his DNA get reintroduced? I mean, is it 23andMe or, 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 I mean, in other words, I understand the DNA they had accessible from the crime scene, but mm-hmm. how does that, I mean, we don't randomly go to architecture firms and say, hey, can we check your DNA? Can we check? I mean, how did we end up targeting this guy? Oddly enough, it was kind of an old school shoe leather sort of situation because the investigators didn't go to his you know, architecture firm, but they did uh, get a partially eaten pizza crust that he had tossed into a trash can on a sidewalk here in Manhattan. Um, the DNA from this pizza matched a hair that was found on the burlap that wrapped one of the victims. The victims, uh, you know, I don't know if all of them, but I know some of them, that was sort of one of the traits that they had in common was they had been wrapped in burlap. Um, and that's how they managed to match the DNA from him to to that. They had also um, gone through his garbage and, you know, found uh, some of the, you know, bottles from his home trash, you know, to get his DNA when they, you know, kind of had narrowed it down and said, okay, maybe maybe this is, you know, one of the suspects. So how did There's they, also, I'm interrupted, but I'm, I'm so interested. So, so how did they narrow it down? Was he a, subs, a suspect in 2010? When did he get on the, on law enforcement's radar? Yeah, that's what I was getting to. So he kind of got on their law, uh, on their, uh, the law enforcement's radar apparently due to uh, one of the vehicles that he had owned. Um, they had a breakthrough when they, the database determined that he had owned an early model Chevrolet Avalanche. And the Avalanche was key because some of the witnesses had apparently told the police that a guy had parked one of those outside the home of one of the victims the night before she died. Um, they used subpoenas and search warrants. They dug into his background. And that's when they learned about his cell phone. Uh, his cell phone had often been in the same general areas at the, at the same time that burner phones had been used to contact uh, some of the different people involved in this. There was, you know, there were burner phones, and they found out that some of those phones and his cell phone even traveled together. If you've learned anything from the Alex Murdoch uh, case uh, that we you know, learned so much about, you know, what in the last year or so, and then this one, learn, learn the fact that your cell phone data gives off way more information than you realize it does, even if you're not on it. Very well explained. Has he pled in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, I believe he's pleaded not guilty so far um, to the charges. Um, like I said, there he is a prime suspect in, in the in one of the fourth uh, in the fourth uh, killing there. So, and there are other ones that are still as yet unexplained. So, you know, who knows if there will be more charges. Um, it certainly seems like prosecutors are working toward that end at this point. Thank you, Tanya. Appreciate and have a good day. Mm-hmm. Thanks. That's just one of the most, I mean, that, that's such a bizarre story. Um, remember last week when we talked a little bit about, I mean, as much as we can, I mean, I'm certainly not the guy to, to try and explain, you know, uh, depression, mental illness, addiction, but, but how does someone 
smart enough to become an architect has such a, dis- a distorted mind or, or I don't know. I mean, how do you get there? I mean, surely that's got to be mental illness, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, I understand it's evil yeah. and it's, I mean, it's, it's all these other sorts of things to dispose of body in burlap, but, um, that's just such a, a fascinating, I know that's a, a weird word and please forgive me for using that word, but it's so fascinating to me that the human brain, the exact same human brain that proved capable of someone becoming educated in architecture was also so capable of being disoriented or, or, or ill or, or, or whatever. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you kind of see where I'm headed. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the same human brain, I mean, the, the guy didn't take a brain out and put a brain in. Here's the brain of a killer. Here's the brain of an architect. Do I want the brain of a killer today or the brain of an architect? It's the same damn brain in a human being that led him down the path of being an architect and also led him down the path of being, uh, looks like a serial killer. And that's just, I mean, I know that's a weird word, but I am so fascinated by that. But because once again, it is a, um, it is a matter of the brain and how powerful and uh, I mean, the, the brain is just such a, an, an amazing instrument, so to speak for good and, and obviously for, um, for bad. But, but as I said, you know, you don't reach in the drawer one day and say, you know, I'm going to grab my, you know, my serial killing brain. And then tomorrow I'll put my, you know, architecture brain back in. Uh, it's just, it's, it's such a, um, it's a sad story. I mean, it's just a human tragedy to the nth degree, but it's still, I mean, there, there's a fascination I have when I said, so this guy's an architect and, and a serial killer. Wow. Okay. Help me, um, help me unravel, unravel that eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven is I'm, the number. I'm certainly not comparing, you know, murder and serial killing to say, you know, drug offenses. But when she was describing the investigative way that they came up with the suspect and then put his DNA together with the, with the crime, I got to thinking about the secret service and the cocaine in the white house. And Hey, I guess we can't figure this out. Move on. Well, I mean, and and think about what you just said. So, so this is a 10 year, a 13 year old murder that they never gave up on. Um, give, give law enforcement a lot of credit for uh, stick to it or stick to it. Incredible. And then figured out a way to, to put this guy at the scene um, you know, go through, it's just, it's hard to believe that in the most secure residents on the planet, uh, with, with what, a, a universe of 300 people. I think I've read a universe of three. We don't know if they're shooting us a straight or not. Um, let's go back to this cause I, I need some help. So who is the government? Josh, when I say the government can't be trusted, mm-hmm. is it that six, three white guy with the blue suit or is it that five eleven black guy with the black suit or is it that that female with the, uh, you know, who wears all those really nice clothes and comes into the West Wing every day to go to work. Um, a bit shady. I mean, who who is the government? I mean, I, I, to me, it's the political hierarchy. It, it's, it's those who work in the squishy abstractness of government. In other words, two plus two might, might equal four, might not. It just depends. Yeah, I think of the institutions. Um, when you when you say the government, it's the institutions, and ultimately it's the people that are in charge of the institutions. Bingo. I mean, it's, so the institutions don't do jack. I mean, the institutions have been there forever. Uh, they're longstanding, that they've had their good days and bad days, but the institutions really and truly 
or, or I mean, this microphone doesn't do anything until some moron gets behind <laughs> it and starts saying a lot of crazy and outlandish things. But but I, I want to clear it. I mean, so who is, Josh, in your word, uh, who is the government? What is it a who or is it a what? It's more of a what, okay. I would say. And if, you know, kind of politics aside, a, a gut, like a just strict definition, the government is the institutions, like Rev said, that govern a body that is considered a nation. But when you, I, because you're kind of getting at, I assume, why do, what do you, what do we mean when we say we don't trust the government? Is that right? Well, I mean, if we are a, if we are a self-governing nation, how do we succeed when we ourselves don't trust the very thing we're entrusted with? I see what you're saying. I mean, we, we the people, it's not we the machines, it's not we the institutions, it's not we the words on a sheet of paper, it's we the people. So, so, so Rev made a, a very, to me, it is the distinguished, the point of distinguishment. So, so we have these institutions and these institutions are inhabited by people. And people are motivated by a lot of different things. We just heard a story of an architect and a serial killer. I mean, how do you put that? You know, you, that's real hard to put together, right? You, you mean to me, uh, he, he, was, he was not a homeless guy. He, he was not destitute. He was not a, you know, a, he doesn't have any previous criminal record or history. No, he was an architect and a serial killer. So, so, so the institution is there waiting on man to take charge. Man takes charge of that institution. That institution has some degree of authority and power over us and our lives, right? So, so, so because of that, we're, we're inclined to be suspicious. Or I am. I can't speak for you guys. But, but if there's an entity or enterprise or institution uh, over here and there's a dude inhabiting that institution and that dude has power and authority over my life, I'm always wondering, what's he motivated by? Because he's got this authority over my life. Um, I mean, he can knock on my door. He can search, uh, you know, my home. He can have a so so. So the institution gives that person uh, the the authority. But but if we are a government of men, how how do we reinvigorate or reinstill some degree of trust? Can we proceed as a nation when more people don't trust? Here I am, the government than do. I mean, if we are a, an experiment of self-governance, right? I mean, we didn't elect a king. The king doesn't pass it down. I mean, didn't Queen Elizabeth just die? And now we got King Charles? I mean, they, they've got some authority, not much. But, but we are a system predicated upon, you know, man putting another man in charge of our body politic. And, and all of a sudden, Dave Baker's going to go to the poll in November, or he'll probably go in June is it June when we have our primary? Primaries next yeah, year. Yeah. So, so, so Baker will go vote for a leader of a government that he doesn't have a lot of trust in. So, so how True. long can we proceed as a nation electing people? I mean, let's let's make a number up. Fifty percent of Americans who vote in the next presidential cycle don't trust government, yet they're still going to vote for someone to lead the government. How long can a nation sustain itself if that is the uh, the reality? I mean, doesn't it require some degree of trust that Josh and Dave and I have for, you know, um, Russell Fry? Or I'm talking about the federal government. I think the, the state and local governments are different animals. I understand they do things you don't like. They do some things you do like. 
but they're not detached. They're not uh, kind of out there somewhere in the abyss. They really don't, you know, what do they do? Who are they? I don't know. I mean, you, uh, you but, but the local and state government, I mean, we find them very relatable. Uh, you know, Jay and Mike and Philip come on the show about every Friday. They're real people. I'm thinking about city and county council. They're real people. You, you can easily convince yourself uh, that the actions of the federal government are kind of the, you know, this is some, um, it's some mythical and mystical figure out there that does all of these things. But can we sustain ourselves if we are a nation governed by man when, when the men casting the ballots don't much trust the men uh, that, that we're putting in charge? Is it really, let me ask you this, and Josh, I'll ask you this, and then we'll take our break. Do you trust more or less the people that you elect or the people that you don't? In other words, the you don't you don't vote for Christopher Ray, you didn't vote for Anthony Fauci. I mean, don't you have some degree of empowerment over the elected officials? I mean, I'm not saying you trust Congress or not, but don't we have some ultimate authority over whether they're allowed to do that yeah, job well, or not? If you didn't vote, I mean, then it would it more than likely people that are against or opposite of your views and may really believe in the bigger, stronger government or be the ones that will be in charge and putting, you know, putting people in charge of these institutions, if you will. And so you have to participate or else it'll just go. There won't be any opposition to it going all the way. So should we have career limits? That's interesting. Because I think it's kind of a double-edged sword where someone like the FBI director who we don't really trust on this show, at least um, he, but he doesn't have like a career limit. He's just been appointed. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, he's appointed by the, he serves at the pleasure of the attorney general, but he's appointed by the president. So I don't trust him to a certain extent because he, he can do whatever he wants. And it's kind of like, Oh, I wish we had some more power, you know, or maybe he should have a term limit, but at the same time, like elected officials, they are so concerned with re-election that they they can it seems like they concern concern themselves more with that than the actual policies we want to see implemented. But is our is our suspicion of a Christopher Ray? Let's use mm-hmm. Russell Fry and Christopher Ray. Every two years we get a shot at Russell. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean yeah, I, 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 get, I, I get 94% of or real but every two years there's a a sense of empowerment that belongs to we the people what can we do about Christopher Ray what can we do about Anthony Fauci what can we do about some of the politically motivated bureaucrats in Washington nothing I think that's why we're even more suspicious of a Ray than we are even a Chuck Schumer I mean I know that I disagree with about 90 percent 95 maybe even a hundred percent of what Schumer says and does in Washington. But but I, I, I do respect the fact that the people of New York have the ability every six years to say yay or nay. What, what is our recourse on some of these folks that, that have worked in these government agencies, I'll use, in, in these institutions that have enormous influence and power over our lives? And, and I've, you know, I've, I've argued this before. Should we have career limits on bureaucrats? Is it healthy or not? For the federal government to be inhabited by people who've worked there 25 years, 30 years, 35 years. Um, I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there as a, you know, a point of conversation. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. The most interesting candidate in the Republican primary this year to me is Chris Christie. Because he's employing a very traditional strategy. And by that, I mean 
Christie's not going to talk to Tucker. He's not going to talk to Bongino or Glenn Beck. Um, he's going to talk to George Stephanopoulos and Chuck Todd and Jake Tapper. Well, historically, that's been where you go to get your message out. You're going to meet the press. You're going, uh, you know, this week with. You go on um, CNN's primetime um, show. But, but you're, you know, Christie is, I mean, it's he, playing tough guy, but he's playing tough guy in kind of an anti-Trump universe. And that's going to be interesting to me to see where he ends up. Um, I mean, he, he got 40,000 donors. He'll be on the main stage. Um, <laughs> when, uh, oh, don't even like that you know, visual. He'll, he'll be on the, the main stage when, um, when, when the debate happens August 23rd. But, but it'll be interesting to watch where he does or what he does in some of the polling. I think he has um, caught DeSantis in New Hampshire, if I'm not mistaken. And really and truly, DeSantis is backed up um, to Christie. And there's somewhere in the 12, 13 uh, percent somewhere there about here's what I think we've established over the weekend. Um, Pence is done. Um, Ramaswamy is the most interesting candidate. Uh, Tim Scott with a hallelujah smile and, um, and you know, whatever, or wherever Tim does a great job at telling his compelling life story. Um, he's got to do, in my opinion, a better job of exactly where he stands with, with some degree of specificity on, uh, the border on China, on energy, on debt. Uh, on America first. Those are some of the, you know, the, and I think, I think DeSantis really did uh, a great job. I'm not carrying the water for DeSantis, but I think Ron DeSantis did a better job than anybody I heard at the, what is it called? Of the family forum or whatever. Uh, anytime Tucker's there and blaze media's in the background, that's a pretty raucous crowd. I mean, that's going to be a, um, more likely than not a Trump favorable um, crowd, but I think DeSantis acquitted himself fairly well um christie was not there he chose to appear with george stephanopoulos and jake tapper and he's you know kind of following the traditional route and he's playing tough guy but but he's playing tough guy in a world where the people hate the person he's running against so it's kind of a i mean it should be a layup i mean if you're kind of the former governor of new york or excuse me new jersey and you gained a reputation as being a bit of a, um, you know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm big, bad Chris Christie, and I don't take squat from anybody. Ask the teachers' union. Ask some of the Democrats in New Jersey what I'm like. That, 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 I mean, that's kind of what America's looking for in both parties. I mean, they, they want kind of a, um, an authentic, uh, an authentic uh, bull in a china shop. I mean, they, I think the Democrats are looking uh, for somebody like that. Now, obviously, they'd rather them be socialist in nature, but they're still looking for somebody who will, you know, describe um, you know, their agenda with, with some degree of authenticity and, and almost a rawness. I mean, I think there, there's a, it's, it's kind of interesting to me that people are as much as they don't want the irreverence, they kind of do. Uh, it, it's almost like when someone says something real raw and you didn't see it coming, you kind of, Oh, I mean, you know, no, I mean, they move, they go up in the poll. I mean, it ends up being a bigger moment, a social media embraces, some of the conservative activists em- embrace that. But I just think Christie at some point in time has to step out of that bubble of Stephanopoulos and Todd and some of the other. It's easy to hate Trump when the moderator hates him more than you do. It's easy to be big, bad, I mean, literally and figuratively, Chris Christie <laughs> uh, w- when you're sitting down with Chuck Todd. But how does Christie perform um, when he sits down with a Bongino or a Clay Travis or a Buck Sexton or... <laughs> Um, you or know, with or Jake, Tucker. yeah, or with Tucker, Tucker would be uh, the one. I think he'd be passed on 
the Tucker Blaze media event. And um, there's just not enough of those. In other words, if you're running for the Republican nomination in America today, there aren't enough Republicans watching Stephanopoulos or Todd or, or Tapper. I mean, they, they've kind of um, they've disconnected from that world. I mean, I would imagine some of the establishment Republicans, what, 15, maybe 20 percent of the party still tunes in to Stephanopoulos and and Todd. And, and a lot of this is, I mean, I think of David, and, and I do it because it's kind of prep for, for the show. You just kind of always done it, and you want to make sure you don't miss something. I mean, if something were to be said, I'll tell you this. I normally watch the Sunday morning shows, either live or recorded, and I hardly ever get anything out of them. I mean, it's almost like watching the same movie over and over and over again, and they're not allowing uh, people who can. You, you don't hardly see J.D. Vance. You don't see Josh Hawley. Uh, they would find a weak defender of America first that then somebody who can really articulate America first in a in a kind of a mainstream um, sort of way. But Chris Christie's very interesting to me. He's made the number to get on the debate stage. He's going to be the bulldog that attacks Donald Trump at every turn. I mean, we know that to be the case. But in the interim, is he going to sit down with some of the leading conservative voices in America that, that by and large aren't in the mainstream? I mean, you know, I'm thinking about who is the most mainstream Republican pundit in America today, America first pundit in America today. I mean, Tucker doesn't have a show anymore. I mean, you can still argue he's mainstream because he has a huge audience no matter where he goes. But but who is the, I mean, what what one, is, is there a, um, I mean, historically it was the, well, it was Hannity. Hannity's got the nine o'clock show. That would be America first. It's not as popular as it once was, but it's still you know, popular, more popular than anything on MSNBC or CNN or, uh, I mean, obviously it would be kind of, um, I mean, Hannity may have the highest rated conservative television show in America today. Um, is Christie going to sit down with Sean Hannity? Is he going to sit down with Tucker Carlson? Is he going to sit down with Dan Bongino, with Clay Travis, with some of these others who have big audiences that by and large, you know, represent kind of the America first voting movement. Let's go to the phone. I was going to say, and now Jesse Waters gets that coveted 8 o'clock slot. And I wonder what Jesse will do with it. Um, because Jesse has been, uh, I want to say this, I don't want to be respectful. You're going to get aggravated when I say this. The majority of people who watched Tucker took Tucker seriously. I'll just leave it. <laughs> okay? No, I, I know I, I know what you're saying. I mean, Jesse's an inter- entertaining uh, very much Pundit. an entertainer. If you would have called Tucker an entertainer, he would have accepted that, but he would have said, yeah, but I mean, check my facts. Yeah. Uh, you I know, think Jesse's an entertainer first. Yeah, entertainer first and not a politico. Um, Tucker would be a politico turned entertainer. It, it'll be interesting. So, so here's my question. Does Jesse turn more, uh, does Jesse turn more into a politico or not? Does he have that ability? Um, can he be that and maintain, um, you know, kind of the entertainment side because, I mean, he's a, he's a kind of a funny dude. Oh, yeah. And and, it's, and what it's, will Fox let him do? I, that, you know, that they'll decide. Right. And I can assure you of that. Let's go to the phone. Verd Odom, Marlboro County. Morning, Verd. Good morning. How y'all doing? Hey, Verd. Good. Uh, Ken, I still look at everything from the polling of the guy at the top, and his numbers aren't changing very much. Uh, I think that the last poll that came out from New Hampshire had him at 47. Uh, I think you're right. I think uh, Chris is in there about nine, and 
DeSanto's about 13. He seems to be failing. They seem to be splitting his vote uh, is what they're doing. But the only only polling numbers uh, since we started keeping them now, we're probably way over several hundred, is uh, President Trump staying in the 45 to plus 50 uh, percentile over everybody. And, I mean, there, there's there's not enough time even now for anybody of them to catch them. I just don't think there's not going to be a breakthrough. Uh, uh, DeSantos is failing fast. He, uh, I think he fired 12 uh Twelve of his staffers this weekend. Uh, they were running about 92. I think uh, you know that's probably about twice or better than what anybody else has got on staff right now. And uh, but you know the only number is the one that the man at the top has got, and his his numbers aren't changing very much. Uh, Verd, do you expect? I mean, th- th- there was a moment. I mean, I think Trump wins the nomination. I'm not. I'm not disputing that. But but I do believe that someone will have a day or two or three. Well, they appear to be gaining a little momentum. I always thought it would be DeSantis. It looks to me like it might be Tim Scott. Tim may overperform in Iowa, go to New Hampshire, and, you know, kind of hold his own, and then come to South Carolina, and he's our, you know, he's the favorite son of South Carolina. The, the, I mean, I, I, once again, I think Trump wins the nomination, and I, you're right. I mean, he's in the 40s, he's in the 50s in some states, but I always said someone other than Trump will have a day or two or three in the sun it looks more like it might be Tim Scott than Ron DeSantis. What say you? I think so. I think, I think DeSantis' campaign is, is falling, and it's going to fall right out, I think, for So I think he'll make a decision. This is probably not his time, and I think Tim, Tim Scott will be the benefactor of that. <laughs> but the problem is that they're so far behind President Trump. Uh, if DeSantis falls out and, and Tim picks up those, and probably not a, a better Christian man in the world than Tim Scott – because I met him several times, but you know they're they're just so far behind. The base for President Trump is is actually getting stronger, and uh, all the the two indictments have done nothing but increase his numbers. And uh, the more they push it, uh, the the more his numbers are going to go up. And uh, but I think you're right. I think Tim will be the benefactor of uh, DeSantos failing, but the, the numbers are just not going to be there. And you're right. President Trump gets the nomination. Uh, I do not believe that Joe Biden will ever be the nominee of the Democrat Party. That's just my own opinion. I think that uh, they're already, I think Democrats are already looking elsewhere to see is there any kind of possibility. And the number two person, uh, they're not even considering her. So that tells you they think they're in deep trouble. But that's where I think it is. You know, I th- and yeah, Donald Trump is just getting stronger, I, I believe, week by week. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. I don't doubt any of that. I mean, you know. He's you, getting stronger with the Republican base, it seems like. Certainly I, the America First base. I think he may be getting a little stronger with independents. Well, that was my question. I, I really okay. believe that, they, and it's nothing Trump's doing. Here's what I'll say. And, and I, I look, look I'm, this is total and complete speculation. Trump is listening to somebody. I, I don't have any idea who that is. But he's running a better campaign in 24 than he ran in 16 or 20. I mean, in 16, it was, come on, Eileen. I mean, it was just like, sit down and write the perfect song at the perfect moment in time. I don't know if we ever did this again, but we did it one time. You know, I mean, it was just like, you couldn't have scripted it any um, crazier. It was Rudy. It was, uh, you, you see where I'm headed. I mean, it was it was Rocky one. Um, in 2020, he was a politician. I mean, he was a president running for re-election. And as much as he tried to be the outsider, the public said, nah, man, you got a record now. I mean, you've, you've done some of these things, and some of these things you've not done. It seems to me that someone is giving him advice on how to run 
this 24 campaign, and he's listening. And they're giving him a lot of good advice. And and I think Trump has spoken loudly and aggressively when it needs to. But now, every now and then he says things, and I, I mean, he's saying now that he doesn't know if that cocaine belonged to Hunter or Joe. And, you know, the, the caller kind of plays along, and he says, well, I mean, you know, Joe... When Joe starts the um, when Joe starts his press conference or not press conference doesn't do those when Joe starts you know the um, in other words when he when he addresses the UN you know at the beginning he makes a little sense by the end he you know you don't know which end side of the stage to walk off on and you know maybe the coke amps him up a little bit and keeps him kind of coherent for a moment I mean, that's Trump being Trump <laughs> but excuse me, but but I I think something tells me that that somebody's giving him advice. In other words, somebody has, has said, Donald, uh, we're not saying listen to us, but but if you're hiring us, let, let us run the campaign to get you reelected. And I think the campaign is, I, I think there's more strategy that has been employed that I've noticed in 24 than there ever was in 16. Because 16, once again, was Rocky One meets Come On Eileen. I mean, just one of them crazy things. Moments in time when, when the right candidate met the right moment. In, in 2020, uh, we can debate voter, you know, uh, voter registration and uh, unsolicited mail-in ballots and ballot harvesting and all that. But I think Trump is beginning. I don't think he's any more popular with independents. I think Biden is less popular with independents. And in a binary world and a duopoly, you know, this guy or that guy, if that if the independents are kind of split on Biden and Trump, and and all of a sudden Biden appears to be not, not as coherent as we imagined he was. Trump picks up some of that, some of that momentum, and a lot of time left. I mean, there, there are a lot of time. I, I don't think there's enough time for anybody to catch Trump in a primary, unless something crazy happens in one of these trials. I mean, if something absolutely out of left field happens in one of these trials, it looks like Trump is going to be uh, the Republican nominee. I still got to believe that there's a day or two or three of one candidate or another kind of, you know, relishing in that moment. Uh, I always thought that would be DeSantis. I'm less optimistic that that's going to be DeSantis because I think DeSantis pushing Trump would have made for a better Trump come um, come November of 2024. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. Thanks Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Rev, you know how politically divided America is? Yep. I mean, we've always argued about s- some of the issues one party believes in a certain social safety net. Another party believes in a different social safety net, entitlement reform, all these. But the one thing we've always been able to agree on is the National Defense Authorization Act until now, until now. And um, uh, one party is playing, uh, well, I mean, one party's accused of playing games. Another party's accused of playing games. But, I mean, that was always the place that you didn't see a lot of political disgruntlement and, and division not the case uh, this year. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is with us from our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Uh, Friday's vote, a near party line vote on the NDAA, is unusual. Uh, the National Defense Authorization Act is an annual bill that's uh, passed. It sets Pentagon policy and also authorizes uh, most of the spending for the Pentagon, right? Training programs, new weapons systems, aircraft. It always includes a pay raise for military personnel. And it almost always gets like more than 300 votes in the uh, in the U.S. House. Uh, not the case this time around. And in large measure, 
Uh, it's because Democrats refuse to go along with a lot of the amendments that were added by Republicans as they deal with some of these social issues. Uh, one of the big ones is um, the military policy that is uh, providing travel reimbursement uh, for service members who have to travel out of state uh, for abortion services. Um, in the aftermath of the Roe v. Wade decision, if you are uh, deployed to a base here in the U.S. and that state has different abortion laws and new restrictions now in place that don't exist in other states, um, the military will pay for your li- your time off and your medical expenses. Now, the Pentagon, the military says that's not a change of policy, that uh, the military has always uh, paid for um, not the services, not not the physical surgery or the physical procedure, but um, has allowed service members the time to, to take time off for, for these types of procedures. Um, you have Republicans who certainly do not like this policy. You've seen it play out, by the way, in the Senate to the tune of more than 200 flag officers not getting promoted because of a hold by Senator Tommy Coverville. Um, and now it's playing out in the NDAA, this debate. And, and we'll see how it gets uh, resolved. Ultimately, what the House passed last week with the NDAA is not going to get through the Senate. It's not going to get 60 votes in the Senate. I think you're going to see a, a much more sort of traditional NDAA uh, come out of the Senate. And then the question is, how much of that will the House accept as they go to a conference committee? When the House passes a version and the Senate passes something else, the two sides uh, have to negotiate. They have to have a conference and, and negotiate a final product. And that's ultimately what is going to get voted on again in the uh, House and the Senate. Do we have any idea um, what sort of compromises are available, Jared? I mean, you're there. I'm not. Um, you talk about conference committee reconciling some of these differences. Once the Senate has a finished product and they confer, do we have any idea? Has one t- side talked to the other side about things they think they can mutually agree upon? Well, listen, I think most of the bill is going to be mutually agreed on, right? The, the, the sticking points are really going to lie in some of these, um, uh, as I said, sort of the social issues that have become a part of the NDAA. That abortion question is going to be where the dispute lies. There is um, a provision within the uh, Republican House Republican bill that does away uh, with uh, diversity uh, training offices and funding. Um, that's going to be something that, that is a sticking point in the Senate. And so I think ultimately we're going to have to see what the Senate passes. I think if the Senate passes sort of the NDAA that would have passed the House without any of these amendments added to it, um, that's probably the starting point. Now, that being said, I think there are something like 400 or 500 amendments that are being offered in the Senate as well. And let's see how they change the bill. Um, you know, And that's not unusual. The NDAA is always chock full of amendment votes. But ultimately, the final product, to your earlier point, is generally pretty bipartisan. And I think there still remains some optimism that that is the case here. But what you saw last week in the House was unusual, Uh, a a party line, near party line vote, I should say, uh, on a defense authorization bill is not something you traditionally see. Uh, But it is something that happens from time to time, especially when you have some of these, um, you know, hot button issues, election issues, uh, privacy issues. You know, obviously, there were a lot of uh, hand wringing with the NDAA and the run up to the war in Iraq and after the war in Iraq. And, And so it's not unheard of. Um, and listen, I think what you're ultimately going to see is uh, this play out on the campaign trail just as much as you see it play out here uh, in the NDAA. Last question. How involved has the executive branch been? Has the president and his team been actively involved in uh, any of these negotiations? So far, no. Uh, this is a, a congressional uh, piece. 
Uh, now, I do think that you may see the, the White House reiterated stance on some of the, the provisions put forward here uh, by, the, um, by the House Republicans. And they do a lot of that, by the way, through the, the uh, Pentagon. The Pentagon has made its case for why these rules and regulations and, and policies are in place, why it is good for um, morale, why it's good for recruiting, why it's good for um, the well-being of, of military personnel. And so they'll make that case to lawmakers, to be sure. Uh, you've not seen the White House get involved just yet, but if it comes to a point where they have to issue a veto threat, I'm sure they're ready to do that if, if it comes to that. But I think they're probably right now willing to see what the Senate moves forward and how the Senate and House resolve some of those differences. Well explained. Jared, thank you for your time, sir. That's kind of an interesting, you know, we always, I mean, we've almost always agreed on the funding of our military. Um, Tommy Turbyville is uh, is the senator holding up some of these promotions. I, I read something over the weekend that some of the Republicans are arguing that members of the armed forces have 30 days of leave. And if they want to, you know, if they want to have some sort of, um, if they want to have an abortion and they need travel to go have that abortion, they've got 30 days of leave that you're, you're basically adding benefit to someone because of their, um, choosing to travel to a, um, you know, a, a state more friendly. I mean, we got abortion tourism. In America, you got states that are more um, friendly to a woman having an abortion. So, if a if a female officer, excuse me, if a female member of the military wants to travel to New York because New York has more liberal abortion laws, some of the conservative Republicans are saying she has a you know thirty days of paid leave anyway. I mean, let her work that in her paid leave. We're not going to give her thirty days of paid leave and two weeks of excused absences to go have. A, an abortion, I, you know, that, that would be kind of where I don't think, I mean, it, obviously I'm, I'm pro-life, but, but I don't think the military should stop a woman from having an abortion if that's what a woman chooses. Now, now I mean, the law of the land, right guys? I mean, it, I'm, I'm not, I'm not king of the world. I don't get to be king of the world. Uh, abortion is the taking of human life, the taking of innocent human life. But we've landed as a nation in a place where the states have been granted the authority. So if a female member of the military gets pregnant and wants to have an abortion, our laws and constitution say, and because I think Roe v. the overturning of Roe v. Wade has constitutional underpinning, so now a woman, let, let's say she's stationed in Georgia, and there's pretty strict abortion laws in Georgia, and the lady wants to have an abortion, and she wants to travel to New York. I mean, are we to a place where I mean, if I'm a congressman or woman uh, deciding on what a woman can do in the armed forces, I'm not saying you can't go to New York and have uh, that abortion because legislatively we've decided that, you know, it's just kind of the federalist, I mean, the, the, the federalism model. That's what we chose um, to implement. And remember when we said, um, and we got a little bit aggravated with Lindsey, and we think Lindsey may have hurt Trump a little bit by wanting to nationalize abortion policy. Now, I understand wanting to protect innocent life. I get that. But when Roe v. Wade, and for years and years and years, for really decades and decades and decades, conservative says, our problem with Roe v. Wade is its lack of constitutionality. And all of a sudden, Roe v. Wade gets turned over. Why? Because the court supposed abortion? No, the court said 
that was not a, you know, the, the, it was a wrongly decided decision. That authority should be invested to um, state legislatures and states now. And, and didn't we always know that New York may have a more liberal abortion policy than South Carolina? Didn't we always believe that California would probably have a little more liberal abortion policy than Texas? I mean, that, that, that's what we asked for. And, and out of that came, um, you know, a multitude of different sorts of legislative proposals. And if a female is stationed in Georgia and that female wants to have an abortion and wants to travel to New York, I'm not, I'm not for stopping the woman from going to it, but, but I am for giving her excessive time off and pay above and beyond what everybody else who doesn't want to have an abortion is entitled to. in effect, you're subsidizing sure. and paying I mean, for it. Well, I mean, you're, you're pay, that's right. Taxpayer dollars going to pay for abortion. And, and, and the military is social engineering. This is exactly what it is. I mean, you're giving, a, you're giving a woman who wants to have an abortion two more weeks off to have that abortion with pay and taxpayer-funded travel than you are that woman who says, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant, I'm having a baby, I, I need maternity leave. Uh, I, I just think it's it, you create this um, this imbalance within um, the ranks of the military. Let's go to the phone. Rick in Centenary. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. Hey, fellas, I'm going to answer the question you asked a little while ago. Uh, who is the government? And I'm going to answer that uh, by answering another question that I've heard several times on the program. So put the first question in your pocket for a minute. And the other question is, how do we ensure accountability for so much of the garbage that comes out of Washington? And I'll say that it depends because the deeds that we're talking about all have names and faces associated with them. But we provide a hiding place for them by calling it the government, the swamp, the cathedral, the Democrats, whatever. I'd say it depends on the deed, and then it depends on the names and the faces that we tie to it. So if we will tie a name and a face to a dirty deed, that will answer the question, who is the government? And I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. Yeah, but I don't think the majority of Americans historically have been aware of who I, I, I don't think they looked at the the leadership of the FBI as politically motivated. I don't think they looked at the leadership of the IRS to be politically motivated, the CIA to be politically motivated. I think we've always known that when you win elections, you have the right to put people in places of influence and power. And that's why it was important when Republicans win elections and, you know, we put more like-minded people in place. But we began seeing somewhat of a recirculation the, the same sorts of people. Um, Jim Comey, appointed by a Democrat, reappointed by a Republican. What does that say about the system? I mean, when, um, uh, we, we, when, a, when a Democrat president runs on a liberal agenda and gets elected to put Jim Comey as director of the FBI, we'd like to believe he did it because Comey is the most qualified law enforcement agent in America, right? I mean, he's proven to be trustworthy, um, unpartisan or nonpartisan, unbiased. And then the, the Republican comes along and says, I've got no problem with the job Comey's done. I mean, you know, I, I, I have a conservative worldview, and I want to see less debt, less government, uh, more restrictive immigration policy. I mean, there's always going to be debates about, you know, what to do with China. We remember talking about DeSantis and, uh, you know, border, China, energy, debt. I mean, there's always going to be political debates about that. 
But you got this guy over here tucked in a corner named Jim Comey who, um, you know, is going but to do the job. Certainly they're above politics. That's well, the I mean, FBI. Well, I mean, but you see where I'm headed. I mean, and, and all of a sudden somebody makes a decision. They've always been political. I just don't think we've been that aware of it. And I think the decentralization of media. I mean, I keep going back. There's a reason. If something bothers Obama, I pay close attention. When Obama was asked what keeps him up at night, his answer was not not thirty five trillion in debt, you know, not Ukraine and Russia. Um, the basically the the decentralization of media, the fact that you know Tucker Carlson can get fired from Fox and end up with more influence on, on some other sort of decentralized um, media outlet. So so I don't know that. I mean, to to Rick's point, I don't know. I mean, if we were still in the old days of media and we had ABC, CBS, NBC, Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, Boston Globe, LA Times, I don't know that we would know much more about the FBI director today than we did. I think he, I think they've always been politically motivated. We've just not been made very aware of that. And I think all of a sudden, you know, we, we have the ability via Twitter and social media and YouTube and uh, s- s- some of the... Um, I'm talking about some of the conservative news sites that are very reputable. I mean, there are a lot of very reputable conservative journalism happening out there. Um, we're, we're, we're shining a real bright light on some of these, you know, apolitical figures that we find are tremendously involved in, in advantaging one political ideology over over another. So Christopher Wray becomes uh, the face of government. Jim Comey is a, is a face of government. Um, you know, L- Lois Lerner is a face of government. And, you know, Obama's no fool. And I think Obama saw this. You know, we don't need Lois Lerner. We don't need to know who she is because she's doing our bidding. Uh, we don't need Jane Com- James Comey appearing before Congress. Uh, n- nobody was interested. How many of you were really interested when the FBI director appeared before Congress 10 years ago? Couldn't care less. Because you kind of you thought the guy was doing the best he could to right. call it like he saw it. And, and now all of a sudden you're like, wow, the FBI directors are going to Capitol Hill. I better watch this. <laughs> That's right. Because half the country thinks he's up to no good. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken. Uh, a little education on Long Island, uh, Suffolk County. That's where the Hamptons is. There's only two counties in uh, Long Island. It's Suffolk County and Nassau County. Nassau's closer to New York City, that's where Oyster Bay is. But when I watch Chuck Todd, I call that opposition research. Remember back in the day, we used to have to watch game film, opposition game film. And then I saw this yesterday. He described Christopher Ray. He said, Chuck Todd said, had to fend off questions. He is a Republican. He calls um, – Ray a Republican. Well, guess what? Yeah, Ray is a Republican. He's institutional Republican. I call it versus we the people. And see, Ray has seen the Comey model. Regardless of what happens to you, like you said, if if he got fired or something, would he have to go back to the field office? Would he have to open up his own private furniture store or something? No. He get a book deal. He can become a professor. He can go on CNN. So that that's that's the new model. But and then Chuck Todd, did you see Jake Sullivan on all these shows yesterday? I did. I saw him on two. I tell you what, man. Here, here, Chuck Todd says, "Have we lost 
the moral authority. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you're going to go with these late-term abortions, Chuck Todd, that's cool. Gender mutilation, that's cool. We're going to run cover for the Clintons and the Bidens, yet whatever, these cluster munitions, you lost the moral authority. That's been lost a long time ago, Chuck. And then uh, you talking about Chris Christie. Good Lord, man, this guy is the human torpedo kamikaze. I mean, he don't even need a bomb strapped to him. He could just use his own body as a, a torpedo. And what this is what bothered me yesterday. He tried to claim that he was a new Ronald Reagan. He said Reagan was a blue state governor. Uh, no, he wasn't. From 1952 to 1992, California only voted one time for a Democrat. It was in 64. And the beauty of Ronald Reagan, he didn't get in politics. He's about 55 years old, sort of like a Ken Ard got in politics when he was 40. But to try to use that as some sort of – you're going to equate yourself to Ronald Reagan and George Stephanopoulos just nod his head. He's on that same team. Uh, so I, I don't know that, you know, Christie, he aggravates me. So I wish Trump would go on stage and harpoon him. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Let, let's go back to something David mentioned a second ago. David's a bit of a junkie like I am on these Sunday morning shows. And I, I feel like it's part of my prep, uh, to do the Sunday morning shows. So you had Jake Sullivan yesterday and I didn't watch meet the press um, for some stupid reason. I don't know, stupid reason. For some reason. Ah, he's stupid. For some reason, the NBC feed in uh, Georgetown County, where I am, comes from Charleston and not from the beach. I don't understand that. But um, WMBF is not the NBC feed in Paulie's. It's Charleston. Hmm. Um, you would you would understand that better yeah, than I. Just the way uh, they designate just, the area. Uh, I, I guess. guess. the uh, Yeah, that's right. The uh, the broadcast area. Doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't make case. any sense to me, but it is what it is. So so they play Meet the Press at 10 instead of instead of 9. So so yesterday morning, I watch Fox, you know, and Shannon Bream and try to make some notes. And then I watch Stephanopoulos. And Stephanopoulos, so, so, so you've got Stephanopoulos hosting this week with David Brinkley, all right? I mean, it's fair and balanced. It's, it's not. Right. It's not biased. It's not. Uh, it's not with a motive. It's. Uh, it's all about getting the truth to the American people. So you've got Stephanopoulos working for. I mean, formerly of the Clintons. I think he's one of the five. I think there've been six hundred people who have given the Clinton Global Initiative over a hundred thousand dollars at one time. I think he's given them more than that. But I think he is one of the six hundred or so people who have made a contribution in excess of $100,000. And I'm talking about Americans. I'm not talking about foreign governments. Forget that for just a second. I'm talking about good old American citizens who are trying to make the world a better place. So you've got Stephanopoulos hosting this week with David Brinkley, professing uh, to be fair and objective, uh, to not have an agenda. You've got Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, uh, being interviewed by George Stephanopoulos. Jake Sullivan is famous for what? Hillary Clinton reading poetry, reading poetry at his wedding. And I'm thinking about who takes that seriously. Here's Sullivan national security advisor who Clinton read poetry at his funeral. I mean, his wedding. And then you've got uh, George Stephanopoulos doing the interview and we're talking about national security. 
what we're talking about, but, but he's talking about the um, the cocaine issue. He's talking about Ukraine. Nobody buys that. I mean, I, how stupid do you think we are? I mean, I understand that, that the majority of Americans have a below average IQ. I mean, just use mean and medians. I mean, it's, 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 in, it's, it's indisputable that whatever, I mean, there's one person in America who is of average intelligence. There's 330 million people in America that there's one American who is average intelligence. Half the country smarter than he or she. Half the country is dumber than he or she. I mean, that's just a matter of math. So, so we're 330 million people. I don't know how many people, a couple of million tune in on Sunday morning. I mean, it may be more than that. I mean, there, there's some legacy there, maybe three, three and a half million. I mean, nobody topped Tucker's audience. And in, in, in Tucker's best days, he was four and a half to five-ish. And that's during the, the campaign season. I mean, we know our ratings tick up, you know, when, when voting is front and center and people are thinking about it. But, but I'm, I, my how the world has changed. David Brinkley's interviewing um, somebody from the NSA. I mean, if Brinkley, if Brinkley were interviewing Jake Sullivan, Brinkley would have demanded that Sullivan be introduced as somebody who was very friendly to the Clintons. In fact, the Clintons, or excuse me, Hillary Clinton read poetry at our next guest wedding. But, but the media has no, they have no interest in being objective. They have no interest in being fair. I think we all understood the wink and nod. We all understood that, um, you know, the majority of journalists were liberal in nature. But, but there was a, kind of an interest in checking your objectives at the door. I am a liberal. I am a journalist. I am a reporter. I'm going to try to not be as liberal in my journalistic endeavors or my reporting job because that's what the American people deserve. And it's just not the case anymore. So, so, so you know, the casual political consumer turns on Sunday morning to see Stephanopoulos talking to, to Jake Sullivan. I mean, it, what would you think of that interview if you knew that Stephanopoulos was one of 600 people. I'm not counting Saudi Arabian foreign governments. I'm talking about just good old American citizens. Stephanopoulos has given the global, the Clinton Global Initiative in excess of $100,000. Hillary Clinton read poetry at Jake Sullivan's uh, wedding. But we're to believe that we're going to get the skinny. We're going to get the truth from these two gentlemen about what's happening in national security land in America. I mean, how stupid are we? How dumb are we? Well, I mean, we're pretty dumb if we've allowed that to happen. If we've allowed Stephanopoulos to masquerade himself as a, a fair and unbiased journalist and Jake Sullivan to masquerade himself as a totally objective and critical thinking member of the government's bureaucracy, then we'll get exactly what we deserve. So when we talk about suspicion of government and, you know, m maybe – Maybe, just maybe, this is because we've been apathetic and we've not cared much about who the FBI director is. We've not cared um, too much. Blind faith in your leaders will get you killed. I'll assure you with that. I mean, if you have a blind faith, if somebody is FBI director and you kind of um, assume, well, I mean, you don't get that job by being stupid. I mean, you, you, you got you to be smart and capable and competent and all the diligent fair-minded, um, you know, you've got to be all these quali qualities and, and qualifications or you don't get that job. But, that, you know, that, that's blind loyalty. And, and to me, that's what has really kind of gotten us in, in, the, uh, in the situation we find our, 
ourselves in today. And, and I want to say this. My suspicion of the government is not all about Democrats. But it's not at all about Democrats. I mean, Christopher Ray says he's a Republican. Jim Comey said he was a Republican. I mean, it's, you know, I'm no less suspicious of those who identify as Republican as I am um, those who identify as, as, you know, liberal. At least a politician has to run on an agenda, right? I mean, at least a politician has to basically say, you know, I'm for bigger government or I'm for smaller government. I'm for empowering government. I'm for not empowering um, government. I mean, the devil's in the details, and some of these things are hashed out in primaries, but at least we know when someone runs for office kind of where they somewhat, maybe they do what they say they're doing, maybe they don't, but we have a chance at them every two, four, or six years, right? I mean, these bureaucrats and these government agencies, and and I I love when Democrats, because they're good at this. They're better than we are. At saying, you know, Comey was a Republican. Christopher Ray is a Republican. What, what exactly? Why do we care? I mean, why should we ever need to know what political party a a uh, an FBI director or CIA director or a somebody in the bureaucratic hierarchy of our of our federal government? But it just kind of it dawns on me every now and then how obvious some things are and how little interest the American people um, seem to have of that. And I, I think that's what Tucker does, Rev. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not. Did you see the, the Mike Pence piece with Tucker? I just saw the, the blurb. I just saw when When Pence says, the you know, that's the not my concern. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the death nail to his campaign. Yeah. And in, in fairness to Pence, I know what he meant. I mean, he meant, you know, uh, you know um, it's not my concern that some Americans don't believe we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Because Tucker was talking about, you know, so you're worried about how many tanks Ukraine has, how many American tanks Ukraine has, when we've got cities falling apart, we've got people on drugs, we've got a debt, we've got all these problems in America. And Pence uh, said, that's not my concern. Well, I mean, that's, wow. I mean, that, that's soundbite 101. What, what he meant was, you know, for those who believe we can't do both, we can't be um, serious about our domestic infrastructure and our domestic issues while being somewhat of a guiding light and a beacon of hope. I mean, Pence's problem is he's a relic. I mean, I think he's a good and decent man, uh, but but he's, he's, he's Republican politics 101 from central casting. And American voters today are looking for something very unique and different. That's probably why Ramaswamy has been so uh, invigorating. That's probably why Tim Scott, uh, with his hallelujah smile, has been so so enthusiastically received. They, they appear to be a little more authentic and real and genuine. And likable. And likable than, than some of the others. Uh, I, I think Pence is a fine and decent man. I think Pence was a good lieutenant for Trump. I mean, I understand, you know, the breakdown at the end. I think that's more on Trump than it is than it is Mike Pence. But, but Pence still believes that voters are looking for the characteristics that they simply are not. I mean, I think voters are looking for somebody out of the norm, somebody a little bit different than than what they've historically uh, voted for. If you put uh, Mitt Romney and Mike Pence in, in a room, they'd probably say about the same. John McCain would probably say about the same things. Um, maybe that's DeSantis's problem. Maybe DeSantis sounds too much like everybody else when it comes to 
you know, the debt and China. Because I think he really and truly, I mean, if you go back and listen, it's on Twitter. I mean, it's on YouTube. Go back and listen to DeSantis. When challenged by by Tucker uh, about some of the uh, some of the America First issues, and he goes through China, he goes through trade, he goes through immigration, um, he deals with the debt a little bit, and and to me he's, he sounds believable on America First, but but what is the answer on America First? I mean the answer on the debt is we spend too much damn money, we better slow down, right? I mean the answer on immigration is we, we better start securing our border. I mean the answer on China is we better not trust them. As a as a fair-minded trade partner, but what is your stance on America First? I mean that that's more of a that's not a sentence. I mean there, there's no soundbite answer uh, to America First. The only soundbite answer that I've ever been able to come up with is you know I want what's best for the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life. But but there's got to be more than that. I mean once again uh, the, the the debt is a real number. I mean that there are real things we could do to address that number. We probably won't, but there are things we could do. Um, energy is a real issue. I mean, it's a, um, how much energy does America consume every day? How much do we need to produce and create the margin that we don't have, you know, a demand deficit? I mean, that that's a real number. Um, what what is, uh, 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 candidate Dave Baker, what, where, do you, where exactly do you stand on America first? Well, first, let me explain America first. You don't have to explain today Baker debt. You don't have to explain China. I mean, he's aware, he's aware of that. But but America First is not, I mean, it's not a, a, a category. It, it's a, it's kind of a mindset. I mean, it, it's an amoeba floating around out there somewhere. And I think it's right for the taking. I mean, I, I really believe that there's enough America First energy out there for candidates not named um, Donald Trump. They just don't seem to understand. Well, I mean, I, I think they understand it, Rev. They just don't know how to articulate this asymmetrical relationship that Republican voters have with their political hierarchy. And having that asymmetrical relationship with a bureaucratic hierarchy that you can't vote for. I mean, once again, um, if I were running for office, I'm not, but if I were, you, you know, part of my spiel would be, you know, I can't elect or uh, you can't elect an FBI director. You can't elect a CIA director. You can't elect an IRS director. You can't elect an EPA director. You can't elect an attorney general. But but I can. And if given the opportunity, I will make sure that the asymmetrical relationship that we've created with our party is restored. And, and whomever I put as IRS director, whomever I put as FBI director, is going to understand the priorities are not, you know, um, the World Economic Forum or depopulation or climate change, or globalism, or intervention. Uh, we'll let Kiev say grace over what Kiev has to, but but our priority, I just think that is the message that DeSantis hadn't delivered yet. And I think it's there for the time. I don't think any candidate has delivered that message except Ramaswamy. I think Ramaswamy has delivered a message very similar uh, to, to what I do, and he does it in a very charismatic and, and a very authentic and very believable um, way. I, I got two texts this morning. Uh, from big Trump supporters who would, of all the of all the likely suspects, who would you rather have on the ticket with Donald Trump? And, and both of these guys say uh, Ramaswamy. You know, put, put him in, uh, put him on the team. I mean, we, we need him, his enthusiasm, his energy. But but then, okay, where do you go from there? I mean, if you've got Trump, Ramaswamy, 
and you go to war against Biden and Harris because it looks like that's kind of where where we're headed. Is Ramaswamy the heir apparent? I mean, are Republicans in America today ready to vote in four years or five years from now for a guy named Vivek Ramaswamy? I mean, let's let's be honest. I mean, there's still a, a kind of a legacy with Republican voters. So Trump runs in four in 24. He wins or he loses. I mean, whomever Trump picks as his running mate is going to be a very consequential America first figure moving forward. Is the is the predominantly stale, pale, and male Republican Party <laughs> ready to embrace as their you know next uh, movement leader a dude named Vivek Ramaswamy? Why not? Well, I'm just saying that, that that's an important question that we have to consider and ponder. We had a President Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah, yeah. But that party's not as stale, pale, and male as we are. Fair enough? You make a point. Okay. 843 yeah. <laughs> is our number. Might be the only point we've made on this Monday morning. <laughs> it took long Takes enough. Mondays to make Fridays. Back in a minute with some trivia. 843 is our number. Trivia time on this Monday morning. I want to thank our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. First correct answer to this next question, or the last question, uh, be the last thing we do today, so not this last question, but the last issue that we cover today, wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. You ready? It's got kind of an interesting, I, I was reading over the weekend. Uh, anyway, I'm always reading over the weekend. Here's the question. What is the most populist bird in the world? Not populist like Trump and <laughs> America First, the most populist L-O-U-S. Like more of them. Yeah, more of them. What bird is there more <laughs> okay. of in the world than any other bird? 843-661-0937 is our number. Hi, you are on. You know the answer? Sparrow? Nope, not the sparrow. 843-661-0937. The most populous bird in the world is? Hi, you are on. You know the answer? It is the starling. Nope, that's not it. 843-661-0937. You are on the air. Do you know the answer? I'm going to say pigeon. Nope, not the pigeon. 843-661-0937 is our number. Interesting guesses so far. Very interesting And, and I have no clue. And there, there may be some support for some of those, but I checked this with about three or four sources. I mean, there's some disagreement, but there's a consensus on this bird. Hi, you are on the air. You know the answer? The wren. Nope, not the wren. Come on now, 843-661-0937 is our number. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Morning Dove. Nope, that's not it. All those are good answers, yeah. and they're all on this list, but none are number one. Hi, you are on the air. You know the answer? Eagle. Nope, that's not it. 843-661-0937. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Nope, not the crow. It's on the list, but it's not number one. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? How about the owl? Nope. Not the I owl. I love these guesses. Yeah, we're running out of birds. How about the <laughs> red-legged junco or something? <laughs> Hi, you are on. You know the answer? Hummingbird. Nope. Not the hummingbird. Hmm. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Chicken. You're right. <laughs> the, the chicken. Is the, there's 25 to 30 billion um, chickens on the planet. Wow. Yeah. No doubt know. about it. Um, unless you're at Tyson's Food, then it's not quite so many. Who is this and where are you calling from? 
Jerry, I'm in Orangeburg. Okay, Jerry. Thanks for listening, my man, and thanks for calling in with the right answer. Yeah, the chicken is the uh, the most populous bird on the planet. I mean, there, there, are other, there are other birds out there considered uh, to be its rival, but the majority of places I looked said the uh, – because I read something over the weekend, there are more chickens than any other bird. I had no way. Uh, we eat too many of those. I mean, there's, no way. There, there's more chicken than there are anything. But there is. There are more chicken uh, in the world than there are any other uh, bird. In fact, the domestic chicken is the most popular bird in all of America, unless – that chicken resides at Tyson Foods, mm. and then it doesn't. Um, yeah, you're 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 hatched. They pump you full of steroids, wring your neck, put you in a grinder, yeah. and make McNuggets oh. out of you. That's kind of the life you lead if oh you're that bird. Gosh. Hey, enjoy your Monday. <laughs> On that note, uh, yeah, we'll talk tomorrow. Have a good day.